Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mojo DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandal. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comics Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 101. I am your host, Dustin, and today I have with me... This is Donovan. This is Jai. This is Stella. And joining us uh, as for a glorious return of one episode is our good old friend, Mr. Batoni. Yes, I have lots of hate for these bad books to fit into one episode after a year of absence. All right, so this is our uh, first episode that we're going to be trying our new format for comic book reviews. So we're going to be doing that. Uh, we have a lot of books to cover, a total of nine books. We are, in fact, covering Teen Titans, um, specifically because it has a lot to do with Tim Drake. And we have a total of eight other books. So with that, uh, we have a little bit of comic news. Of course, bat books for beginners, so let's get right into comic news. This is Summer Gleason, back live at the Gotham State University. The campus bank was the target of a robbery and a malicious arson attempt by the so-called Scarecrow. The very first news we have comes on September 17th, and Comic Book Resources announced that there will be die-cut covers for the Death of the Family uh, crossover event happening between October, November, and December. Now, these, uh, these for those of you who don't know what a die-cut cover is, uh, the only example that I can give you is uh, Batman number 497 had a black and white half cover that covered uh, the front part of the cover. Um, these covers that uh, are going to be covering um, the actual issues specifically for Death of the Family um, are die-cut cardstock overcovers. They will all be designed by Greg Capullo, and they will be on issues Batman number 13, Batgirl number 13, Catwoman number 13, Suicide Squad number 14, Batman and Robin number 15, Detective Comics number 15, Nightwing number 15, Red Hood and the Outlaws number 15, and Teen Titans number 15. So lots of uh, crossover books. Uh, we might actually be covering all of those titles, even though we normally don't cover Suicide Squad and Teen Titans. And by that point, we'll also not be covering Red Hood and the Outlaws. So we'll probably be covering all of those books. Uh, we'll just have to see how much they actually fall into the death of the family and if they have a great, great, great enough importance to actually cover. And I'm sure they'll jack up the price for each one of those issues. Well, hey. So the people that were in charge of Marvel in the 90s doing all these special covers are now in charge of DC this decade and uh, doing the same type of gimmicks. My understanding is that it was a uh, Dan Dio decision, but uh, nonetheless, it, you know, if they jack the price up for these die-cut covers, that would kind of tick me off. I mean, I will get the die-cut covers, but I don't necessarily want to pay variant cover money for just die-cut cover, because to me, that seems like a waste of money. I'll need to see an image of the die-cut cover, because I can't think off the top of my head what you might be referring to, because I can't, uh, that, that Batman 497, I don't remember which issue that was, uh... So uh, we'll see. All right, so the next bit of news we have on this, on September 17th, DC revealed their solicitations for December. 
Um, out of the solicitations, no real big creator changes um, within the main bat books. Um, as far as other bat books, we have Batman Arkham and Hidge, number 9, Batman Beyond Unlimited, number 11, Legends of the Dark Knight, number 3. Um, and then as far as uh, some other DC books that are featuring characters from the uh, from the Batman universe, Teen Titans number 15, All-Star Western number 15, Grifter number 15, Suicide Squad number 15, Swamp Thing number 15, Justice League number 15, Aquaman number 15, World's Finest number 7, Birds of Prey number 15, Red of Hood, Red, Red Hood and the Outlaws number 15, Amikami Girls featuring Dula Dent number 3, Smallville Season 11 number 8, and Young Justice number 23. So uh, lots of books. Uh, as you as you may have noticed, I said Birds of Prey is a non-Batman universe book. Um, um, Birds of Prey is also possibly going to be going into the uh, same same vein if uh, as Teen Titans and Red Hood and the Outlaws, where it has a character but doesn't necessarily involve characters within the bat or it doesn't directly involve characters from the Batman universe. So because of that. Um, that's another book that we're going to... No! So if only Stella had a show of her own where she could talk about Birds of Prey. No! <laughs> Dustin's going, by the way, Stella, you're not allowed to talk about Birds of Prey on Batgirl the Oracle anymore. I have spoken. <laughs> so anyway, the, the main reason is because, for the most part, the Birds of Prey, it's, it's similar to Reddit Hood and the Outlaws where... It has a character from the Batman universe, but the reality is that the character is not um, focused on as much as, say, Black Canary or uh, Starling, for example. So the thing is, so that's one of those books where, you know, it's another book that we're going to cut for now. Uh, we'll definitely bring it back here and there um, when when it actually involves the Batman universe. <clears throat> but in cutting that book, cutting Red Hood and the Outlaws, um, these books, um, by cutting them, it also allows us to you know, bring other books from the DC Universe in when Batman has a major role. Um, so you can look forward to some of those going forward as well. Birds of Prey was like the only female, well, except for Batwoman, the only female-led um, book that was pretty solid consistently. So now we're left with Catwoman, Batgirl, <laughs> and Batwoman. It's like the females are dying here. The good These females. He killed Red Hood and the Outlaws. Well, yeah. So and there's a chance that we'll kill Talon after a couple issues too. So Aww. very strong. Just actually, zero I, I, wasn't too bad. I remember uh, when we were like, you know, scheduling the pre fifty two discussion with Melinda and John. That like, I was I was texting Dustin and saying, "Do we have to review Birds of Prey, please?" Because like the Gail Simone arc was so bad, and he's like, uh -huh. "Yes, we have to review it forever." So I guess one year later we don't. Alright, so anyway, the next bit of news we have comes on September 18th. Uh, Scott Lobdell uh, talked about the zero issues and what they will reveal and leading up to the death of the family. So for this interview, I will read for Newsarama and Don will read for Scott Lobdell. Scott, for the death of the family, how many issues will be tying into the Batman storyline, both Red Hood and Teen Titans? Two official direct tie-ins issues each issues 15 and 16, then lots of fallout for the next six months after that. Yeah, yeah, you've heard, heard a thousand times before that, this event changes everything! Well, let's meet back here in six months and you'll be stunned how much this event really did change everything. 
How much of your Teen Titans tie-ins to the death of the family will be about the team, and how much is it about a Tim Drake story? Fitty, fitty. In Red Hood and the Outlaws, number zero, you're getting the chance to rewrite how Jason came back to life after being killed by the Joker. What can you tell us about the issue and how how different it is from what we've seen before? This is a trap. It actually ends on Jason's realization that he is about to come back to life. So we see no rising from the grave or his relationship with Talia or any of that. Instead, we see Jason's life from Jason's perspective. And I have to warn you, it's not an easy story to read. Even after the death of his parents, Bruce Wayne was still a boy millionaire with an adoring Alfred at his side. Jason was born into poverty in crime and addiction and depression. In fact, aside from the short time he was Robin, he had a very hard scrabble existence. In this story, we understand why Bruce and Batman both came to the to be the defining people in his life just before he died. A lot of people have reacted to the comment you made at San Diego that Tim Drake was never a Robin. Do you maintain that people calling him Robin in former New 52 issues were just shortening his real identity of Red Robin to the one-word common name for Batman's sidekick? I guess you could argue that it's just a small change, so it shouldn't be that big of a deal. But then the flip side of it is, if it's such a small change, why make it? Oh, I don't think it's a small change at all. I think it's a huge change. But I think the most important question is, why do you as a writer of this character believe it's important to establish him as the only Red Robin, and do we see reasoning for it in Teen Titans number 0 next week? The way you frame the question makes it seem like being only Robin is somehow under motion, but I don't see it that way at all. I think it is awesome that Tim looked at the role of Robin that was filled by Dick and the recently departed Jason and said, I'm going to honor the role of Robin by not assuming that I can leave into the part just because I'm the latest 15-year-old boy to put on the cape. In issue zero, he very directly says, yes, he will be Batman's partner. He will learn everything he can from Batman, but he's not going to downplay Jason's death by pulling on the mask before Bruce has even had much time to deal with the boy's murder. It is sort of like a cop coming to a new precinct and deciding to grab the badge and number of the cop who died the night before. Who would do that? All right, so that's the end of that interview. I mean, the reality of this is that the that Scott Lobdell has clearly got a specific point that he's trying to make about Tim Drake never being Robin. Honestly, like I said before, to me, the name thing isn't that big of a difference. Um, obviously, when we review Teen Titans, there is, are some other differences that we're going to talk about that I do have a problem with. Um, we'll talk a little bit later when we review Red Hood and the Outlaws number zero about the changes that Lobdell made for Jason Todd coming back from the dead and how it kind of linked a little bit more to the recent... Uh, under the Red Hood movie than um, the actual comic continuity. Uh, at this point, I'm not really liking uh, Scott Lobdell at all. And, like, it's not just because of his writing, but, like, interviews like this, I find that, like, his answers to questions like these uh, err on the side of either, you know, just complete off the cuff or just really disingenuous. Like, the whole, you know, is Robin... Do you maintain? He said, "Be asked point blank. Do you maintain that people called him Robin for shortening of Red Robin, even though he was Red Robin? They knew he was Red Robin." He's like, "Yes," and then he says, "Well, you know, Red Robin wasn't an emotion, so you don't have to treat it like it was." And, you know, it's not, it's a big change, but then it's not a little change. I mean, we'll, we'll get more into it with the review, but like this, this. I mean, I read this interview when this was first posted, and this really just leaves me cold. I think Donovan feels like what Dick Grayson felt like after Tarantula visited him. But that's just a guess. Um, you know... <laughs> You're full of it. Oh, you know, Scott Liddell is an interesting person. 
in real life, you know. And uh, I think he's one of those sort of shock and awe types of people. And um, I don't know. I think that's all I have to say is that he's a shock and awe person. And I guess we'll just see what has to happen. And uh, also we will see what Stella thinks as compared to what everyone else thinks as we review these titles. All right, so then moving into our next bit of news comes on September 18th. Greg Capullo talked with comic book resources about his upcoming work with uh, Death of the Family. So for this interview, I'll read for comic book resources, and Joe will read for Greg Capullo. You're also working on a series of special die-cut covers for Batman and many of the tie-in titles. They themselves tie into the concept of Joker's new face, but who dreamt up this scheme and what was your initial reaction to it? Dan DiDio and Mark Chiarello. Dan actually mentioned it to my wife first. I later talked about it over dinner and he sold me. Dan is so enthusiastic about all this stuff. It's contagious. In the past, things like character designs mean the final product can be a little bit more unfinished to get the idea across to your peers. Here you're working on a number of different complete pieces for the public. What are you doing to keep each one unique while also using the die-cut idea to its fullest? Do you have a favorite so far? Well, it was a bit of a challenge. The die-cut itself had to have a straight edge. The other challenge was working with the limitation of using only half of a character's face and reusing the same angle for all. Trying to show individual personalities with, with these confines. I think I pulled it off. As for favorites, is that a trick question? We know that the story involves Joker targeting members of the Batman family, and he'll likely bring along some different villains as well. What's it like to be looking at an arc that expands the cast out in some ways? Is this more like drawing a team book in this arc than a Batman versus villain kind of story? First off, I don't really know what's coming on the full story, so I'm not sure what other villains may be showing up. But to me, this whole thing is nothing but a party. I don't think too much about any of those issues is the truth. When I get the script, oh, when I get the script, I try and let the movie of the story play in my head. Then I pick out a few stills and go, "Okay, how can I translate this so it looks like a comic book page?" To me, that's nothing but a party. I don't give it as much thought as people would like to give me credit for. I just let my gut take over and have fun. All right, so that's the end of that interview. Basically, I mean, the big thing is he's looking forward to doing Joker. Um, and when he says, I don't know what's really coming on the full story, I have a hard time believing he doesn't know what's actually going to be happening um, in the whole story because it's just hard to believe that. All right, so next up we have on September 19th, Kyle Higgins talked to Newsarama about his work with the Death of the Family. Lots of interviews with the Death of the Family. For this one, I will read for Newsarama and Stella will read for Kyle Higgins. Kyle, this week's number zero issue looks like it's an origin for Dick Grayson. Is it going to give us his backstory in the New 52? It's the story of Dick Grayson becoming a superhero, which means Robin. It's the origin of the first Robin. It includes where the name comes from and where the decision to work with Batman comes from. And while it's a story that a lot of people are going to recognize, there are some new wrinkles to it, particularly on the emotional level, where we start to get into who Dick Grayson is and the way that he is always looking forward and never back. And you'll see what that means when something tragic happens, like his parents dying. It was a very interesting opportunity to juxtapose Dick and Bruce, who are very similar in the way that they're both products of a tragic event, but they went about dealing with it in different ways. That's the crux of the issue. 
It's also setting up some threads with Lady Shiva, with who Tom DeFalco will be doing a two-part story with in issues number 13 and number 14. And Tom also worked with me on the number zero issue. Yeah, so this sets up the next storyline while also establishing the origin of Robin in the new 52. It's exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing what people think of it. As you mentioned, there's a two-issue story arc by Tom DeFalco. Why is he filling in for a couple of issues? Because a joker... Issues are so important and so big, the decision was made to give <laughs> to give me a chance to get ahead on them and jump forward and set some things up, as well as develop pretty in-depth what's coming after the Joker story. The Joker story. <laughs> the Joker story is really a huge turning point and changes a lot of things. When you see what happens during Death of the Family, it will be much clearer why there was a need and desire for me to jump forward and spend a lot of time developing everything coming out of that. Are you working pretty closely with Scott Snyder on the death of the family? Yeah. I flew out to New York back in May, and we had a little powwow in the D.C. offices between myself and Scott and Pete Tomasi and James Tinian IV, who is doing all the backups in Batman as well as launching Talon. And then Gail Simone and Scott Obdell were conference called in. And we all worked pretty closely developing this story and what the particular pieces were going to be. Even coming out of that, I've been working pretty closely with Scott, and I wouldn't have it any other way. It's lots of fun. That said, Scott's given me a ton of freedom, as he's given all of us, really, to make this a story unique to Nightwing. His only mandate was, make it the scariest, most impactful Joker story that you've ever seen for your character. What's so exciting for me is, aside from a couple instances, I can't think of a really big Nightwing Joker story. The moment that comes to mind would be during What Last Laugh by Chuck Dixon. How many issues is your tie in to Death of the Family? It's two issues, number 15 and number 16. And issues number 13 and 14 have some setup and development for my Joker story. I coordinated with Tom a little, giving him a heads up about some of the plot points I needed set up for the Joker story. And then there will be some fallout for several issues afterward. It sounds like you've really planned what's coming for Dick. To finish up, can you give us a few words to describe what's coming for Nightwing in 2013? There will be seismic shifts coming out of the Joker story, but things are coming for Nightwing, and there will be big changes ahead for Dick Grayson. All right, so that's the end of the interview. I was most interested to know why exactly Tom DeFalco had to step in to do this, because, well, quite honestly, nobody had to step in to do Nightwing prior to Night of the Owls, so I guess, really, that was just uh, an excuse to say, hey, I, I wanted some time off. And that's, that's my thoughts on why he's actually off those issues. But uh, needless to say, everybody keeps saying over and over again that, you know, everything is going to have repercussions out of this Joker story. So I'm really just hoping that, you know, once next month hits and we start seeing some of these issues, we really see this, uh, we see the, the we, we, can, we can foresee the fallout that's coming because of the seriousness of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Dustin. Um, I'm not sure why DeFalco was brought in. Uh, has he ever, I don't even know if he's written for DC before. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Legion's Lost is what he's no. been writing. Well, that will, the listeners will never hear that now. Um, but I, I was, I was, you know, just like Dustin thinking, I wonder why DeFalco's, uh, co-penning these issues. And I'm not sure, like, the, uh, like what he says, you know, like, well, I was going to work on Death of the Family with the Joker stories. And, um, I mean, I'm not saying it's bad. Tom DeFalco is a great art, uh, not artist, great writer. It was just very questionable. I remember reading Nightwing issue zero. And like Tom DeFalco's name just just stuck out at me, so I was very puzzled about that. Um, 
after reading Nightwing Issue Zero, I think a lot of what Higgins says about Dick Grayson's characterization. I'm not saying like you know there's no characterization in this story, uh, at least at least in Nightwing particularly. But I think that like a lot of stuff like you know how he how he uh, affects Batman and why there needs to be a Robin. Uh, I'll probably I'll definitely hit more in the review, but I think that this interview promises a lot of what might not be in the actual issue. It's hard to talk about the points that he made in the interview without jumping ahead and reviewing the actual issue zero himself. But I like uh, one point that he made in the interview about the way that Bruce and Nick both deal with tragedy and how he followed it up in the zero issue. Um, I was getting ready to jump on him when he says, like, I can't think of a Nightwing Joker story. I'm like, come on, come on, when Nightwing killed the Joker... And, like, when I'm listening to the reenactment of the interview, Stella, in the form of us, Kyle Higgins corrected himself, herself, a second later. All right, so next up, September 24th, James Tinian IV talked with Newsrama about uh, Talon and uh, the Joker. Uh, so for this interview, I will read for Newsrama, and Don will read for James Tinian IV. James, let's just start with a general description of the story in Talon. Give us a setup for what people will see in next week's Zero Issue as we're acquainted with the premise of the comic. Well, Newsrama, Calvin Rose is a man who has spent his life on the run. He ran from his family, he ran from the life he was building during his time in Haley Circus, and ultimately, he ran from the Court of Owls. He, like many others before him, was trained to be the sacred killer of the court, the Talon. But when he realized what kind of monster they were twisting him into, he knew that he had to get away. The Zero Issue will explain that story of running and the fear that drives Calvin to act. The interesting thing about him is that unlike any of the talents we saw during Scott's epic Court of Owls saga, Calvin Rose was an escape artist. Being able to get away has always been his only defense against his greatest fears. Issue number zero will introduce the readers to the character and show us why he's so broken and fearful, but also what makes him strong. Issue number one will bring us to the present, where Calvin has been living in constant fear of being trapped and killed by the court for seven years. The series will explore Calvin learning to... The series will explore Calvin, Calvin learning to deal with that fear and move past it as he finds the strength with him, within himself to fight back for the very first time. How much will Calvin and the other characters interact with the Bat family? All I'll say here is that there are definitely plans. Coming, to the present, coming from the present and not the past means there's definitely a story in Haley's Circus days and what his relationship with Dick Grayson might have been like. I can't imagine Batman's going to be thrilled when he finds out Italian is running around Gotham in the larger DCU. Let's talk about your work on the Batman backups. I know you guys are heading toward the death of the family. How much do the backup stories have to do with the death of the family? Can you describe their role in the story? I can't go into too much detail on these just yet, other than to say that the backups will deal with the Joker interacting with some of Gotham's most notable rogues. There will be standalone pieces that should add something to the scale of the story, while keeping a smaller and spookier focus. There's always something electric when two iconic villains are on a page with one another. And when one of those characters is the Joker, the electricity is quite a bit more deadly. These little vignettes are coming to life with art by the incredible Jock. Or Jock. Yeah. Uh, Jock. Who is exactly the, kind, exactly the guy you want to draw a tense little horror story. Scott and I are really proud of these backups and I think the fans are going to love them. All right, so this is the end of that interview. Now, based off of that one question, how much will Calvin and the other characters act interact with the bad family that is uh why i was mentioning earlier that this might be a book that we only cover for so long but uh we'll still cover on the website the the reality is um we don't know how much this character is actually going to interact with the bad family um yes there will be small links like Haley circus and you know uh, calvin's history with dick grayson 
but again, those those things don't play into the normal continuity of what's going on. Um, the the other part of this interview um, that we didn't include in this is also uh, Tinian specifically stated that Talon will not be part of the Death of the Family crossover, which is another reason of why this book may be short-lived as far as on this podcast. Yeah, I, obviously he's going, he's going to run into Batman. I'm wondering if he's going to, be, you know, hell, I'm, I mean, a year from now he could be a member of Batman Inc. for all we know, uh, unless Morrison's departure destroys Batman Inc. forever. Uh, I mean, I'm down for Talon, uh, at least on a conceptual stage. I don't think it's anything special, but we'll get more to it when we review it. Dustin was saying that there might not be or this book might be short-lived on the podcast. I think just from that interview, it doesn't sound like there's going to be much life to this book anyway. It doesn't sound like once they've got past their first arc that there's going to be all that much story to tell. And I reckon this really is just a kind of... It's, they know it's going to sell well for the first few issues because of uh, how successful the Court of Owls was, and then they're just going to let it die. So I can't really see this going anywhere. But I didn't know Jock was going to be drawing the backups for... Batman, so I'm really excited for that. So at least there's some good. I actually think this book has a lot of potential, but uh, you may call me like the optimist of the group because I I consistently say that uh, Batwing has a lot of potential. Um, but I, I think that you know there are stories to be told with this guy, and and I was certainly one of those people that thought, oh no, what is this going to be about? But I was actually rather taken with number zero. So you know. Tinian's name is not going to carry it right now. I think that because Snyder is sort of co-scripting with him for a little bit, that that's going to carry a little bit more. But afterward, if, if Tinian can continue on and, and they do tell good stories, then I think it'll be worthwhile. Uh, but I guess if we're not covering it here, then I may not continue this guy's journey. But, uh, you know, I do encourage you to maybe give it a chance if you're looking for something different. All right, so then our last bit of news comes on September 27th. Scott Lobdell uh, talked with comic book resources about the different origin that emerged from Teen Titans number zero. So for this interview, I'll read for comic book resources and Joel will read for Scott Lobdell. Scott, this month's Teen Titans number zero contained a, a huge reveal about the new 52 Tim Drake. Not only are his parents still alive, they're currently in witness protection. Obviously, this is a big change from the previous DCU status quo. How will this affect his portrayal in, the f in future appearances? I really feel one of the most important and unique aspects of Tim's history is that he was one of, is that he was the one member of the extended Bat family who had truly loving and supportive parents. I felt that when they died, a little part of him that was so interesting in comics died along with them. We have plans to see them again in the relative near future, and for CBR fans only, I'll tell you what. Well. CBR and Bat Batman Universe fans only. I'll tell you that Tim was watching them by satellite in a recent issue of Teen Titans. The issue where he's in the back of the limo with his laptop. Being away from his parents is painful for Tim, but he realises that in order to do his job to the best of his capabilities, he needs to put some distance between him and them. Beyond the re reveal of the witness protection, it also almost seems like there's something fans might have missed in Batman's ending line involving Tim's name. Anything you can tease about that? I'm going to tell you something here, for CBR and Batman Universe fans only, <laughs> <laughs> that I don't think will upset anyone editorially, but I guess we'll find out. After I finished the script, and I believed it, and I believed it was sent over to the printers, I got a text from editorial saying, love the witness protection thing, 
we think it works better if we reveal Drake was never his real was never his last name. Took care of it. Now some writers fly into a rage when their work is rewritten, and it only rarely ever happens to me. But I thought, okay, I can see that. I can see all the potential for future storylines that can that can come from that. Mysteries that ultimately need to be revealed. So in some ways, I was so surprised by the last page as everyone else who read it. I dig it. Jason Todd may not be physically may not have physically appeared in Teen Titans number zero, but his spirit was definitely felt. Will Tim's relationship with Jason ever be explored in depth? Oh yeah, for sure. I loved the two of them together. The breakfast in Outlaws was one of the, was one of my many favorite moments of the series so far. I think these two outsiders share more in common in the Bat family than any others. There's an upcoming issue where it's where it is pretty much just Jason and Tim on panel together. That's the plan anyway. We'll see if we can get away with it. All right, so that's the end of that interview. We're going to talk a lot more about this when we actually get into the review of Teen Titans, but yes, uh, we are. that's why we're not going to talk about it now. So <laughs> we're not even going to discuss this further. It was just important to actually read some of Scott Lobdell's thoughts before we uh, review the issue. <laughs> so with that, that is all of our comic news. We're going to get into our books, and the very first book we're going to cover is Talon number zero. What kept you? Sudden case of shyness. Written by Scott Snyder and James Tinian IV, art by Gilliam March. The issue starts off with the young boy who has been locked inside of a dog kennel um, by his father, and just as he realizes he's probably going to die, he looks at the chain and notices a chink in it and hits it with rock and escapes. We then cut to five years ago where Calvin Rose is working on uh, a bridge with a as a construction worker. He sees a jumper and insists that the police are never going to get there in time, very quickly gets down, only to find that the man has actually been stabbed by um, the court of all Talon knives, and behind him is a Talon. After he is uh, stripped down naked and chained and bound, he is put into the trunk of a car, with uh, his construction worker friend and the man whose car was originally sitting in the front of the seat, he pushes the car, the Talon pushes the car into Gotham Harbor. We then cut to the past where we find out that once Calvin Rose escaped from that dog kennel, he ran into a man who taught him to be an escape artist, and he was the youngest escape artist in America, and he was supposed to be... Um, the big one of the big star acts for the Gotham City Spectacular, uh, the same day that the Flying Graysons were supposed to be the fly, uh, the the, the uh, main show for the Gotham City Spectacular too. Instead, Haley uh, brings him to do a special um, performance for somebody, and uh, once he escapes, um, we, it's revealed that the person who is actually uh, interested in in Calvin is actually a member of the Court of Owls. He's taken to the Court of Owls and talks to them, and the Court of Owls explains that um, there are lots of rats in Gotham City, and their job is to get rid of them. So he gets trained in a number of different methods, which is shown on various pages. Um, finally, we find out that the Talon that is um, the current Talon, the one that is supposed to be being replaced by Calvin Rose, is in the labyrinth, and uh, Calvin Rose is ordered by the Court of Owls to cut his throat. As he cuts his throat, he realizes that um, he, in fact, is going to be killing people nonstop for the Court of Owls. The Court of Owls explains to him that he has to, he has to 
go mad inside of the labyrinth and uh, he has to starve and, and in order to really prove that he's ready to be the talent. The next day, the Court of Owls shows up only to find out that Calvin Rose has actually escaped the labyrinth and is sitting in their actual secret meeting place. They explain that he is ready and they give him a name to go do his first mission. We then cut back to five years ago where the car has hit the water and the trunk is filling up with water. We see Calvin, who has a lockpick inside of his callus of his foot, um, use it to undo the chains. And then we cut back to the past where we see him breaking into a building that was extremely protected by the man who used to live there, CEO Eric Washington. And uh, his apartment has been known as the safest private residence in the country as he has hired numerous security companies and uh, a security detail to actually watch. He's actually died, but the court has determined that his bloodline must end with the death of his daughter. As uh, Calvin Rose approaches the daughter, he comes to find out that uh, the daughter is actually only two years old, and he has a problem actually trying to kill her and is convinced that he cannot be a talent. After knocking out the nanny or babysitter, he grabs the babysitter and the girl and decides he has to do what he does best, and that's escape. Um, back five years ago, we see we see Calvin Rose approach the Talon, who put him in the trunk of the car, and as he sits there, um, he hits him over the head with a chain and asks for his pants. After he gets uh, his pants on, he, um, he works on his wounds and asks the Talon what exactly the plan was, why... You know, was the plan really to kill him? Uh, the talent explains that the uh, Court of Owls has no intention of actually killing him. They want him back as a member of the Court of Owls. Um, it was actually the talent's idea to actually prove that he was worthy. Um, Calvin climbs up to the top of the bridge, gets in a truck, and says, My name is Calvin Rose. This is my story. And that is talent number zero. All right, so the very first uh, thing we're going to talk about is the fact we're going to compare Talon, Calvin Rose, to the other Court of Owls characters. Now, for example, they, they stated numerous times throughout this entire issue that Calvin Rose is an escape artist and the, the Court of Owls has never had an escape artist. Most of the uh, talents that the Court of Owls look for are much more on a grander scale, so the reality is, why did they pick an escape artist and when they said he needed to be inside of the maze to go mad and he escaped within a day, why did they decide at that point that he was ready to become a talent? I don't I never, I didn't understand that point when I read it because after he killed the guy, he says, okay, that was part one. Your next mission is to starve for 24 hours and see how you, how, how your body is then. And, and like, I thought that was kind of, um, I didn't think that that made a lot of sense inherently. I thought it was just, you know, kind of just to build up the court of hours more as like the badass cult people but i didn't really follow why they felt that they had to like you know test calvin rose in that way um basically every every time they every time they go after this character in this issue i think that like it's sort of like they're trying to kill him or they're trying to get catch them but it turns out to be a test because they like him so much and i think there's a lot of back and f- there, i think in this comic uh the court of hours tries to ha- uh, the way they're they're written it's sort of both both uh two ways down a certain path where they're either threatening him or they want him part of their team and it's like you know just to kind of build up the character 
and I don't think I don't think it's very consistent after a while. So I I like that th that was a really good thought, Dustin, about comparing them to the other talents, and that you said they sort of uh, how did you phrase it? They sort of go after they go after somebody they don't necessarily go after. The uh, the other talents were care uh, their talents were on a much grander scale. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I I can definitely see that. I also thinking back through all the talents. I think each one of them uh, was sort of broken in a way. Um, I'm thinking, you know, to the Batgirl Talon where, you know, she lost her, you know, her family to that balloon accident. She was really, she was messed up. Um, the, the, the childhood friend of Dick, he was sort of taken and not not really willingly and then sort of tortured in order to get him to be a talent and there were, and then that one man you know lost his his fiance who was pregnant so all of them i think have these really sort of broken pasts and i think this is almost a way to uh get them to have uh, a dedication to the talents because if the talents take them in and sort of give them this power train them almost take care of them and nourish them even though they do sort of bring them down like break them down a bit uh they're almost you know in a way like um just like this great powerful leader that is showing caring and so in in doing this they've got someone that will probably pledge their allegiance to them for all forever. And we start off with this, you know, young man who his father put him in a dog cage for whatever reason and just sort of left him there and he was slowly starving. So there's sort of that, that broken thing right there. And um what was the other thing? Oh the breaking down to yeah. I don't know if I I mean why does someone have to be sort of crazy? and broken down like that. But I do see it as, yeah, a test. And I think perhaps they were hoping that if he is such a great escape artist that he would be able to pass this and, and get there. But I think even in the end, they were sort of shocked to see this. But, yes. So then my next thought is, you know, Gilliam March is the artist for Talon. This is taking him away from Catwoman. And, uh, you know, I was I was... I got to say, I was kind of interested in seeing Gillian March's take because, for the most part, Gillian March has done female books over the past couple of years. He did Gotham City Sirens. He did Catwoman when the New 52 launched. So to see a book that, you know, for the most part, didn't even have any females in it, you know, that's a big step away from what he's been doing recently. But nonetheless, we still get the uh, gratuitous nudity with uh, having talent stripped down to the bone. Um... I don't necessarily know what the point of that is other than maybe Gilliam Arch just likes to draw naked people. I, I think that wasn't March like an erotic artist at one point. Or not at one point, but like, isn't that Oh, like, he like, is. What, yeah, I remember hearing that. Um, I, I, I will say that like, uh, I know I knew that he was going to be the artist, but when I opened the book and actually saw the art, I will admit that I've always been a Gillian March fan. I still think he's a very good artist at the end of the day. I like his I enjoy the style. Once I opened this book and saw his style here, I I, I re realized that I'm kind of tired of him. And I feel kind of bad saying that cuz I you know we we've read him on Azrael, Gotham City Sirens and Catwoman. And I'm not sure whether it's just like the coloring or what, but like his style to me has kind of like it's it's kind of uh overstated its welcome in my opinion, because although it's always very interesting, it's very well, or at least most of the time it's very well uh, rendered, I feel that he has sort of like this kind of like really uh, anachristic kind of like, uh, almost Dr. Seuss kind of style. There's some poses, I mean, there's one, 
the, the one shot of uh, Rose where he's like saying, where the hell are my pants? Looks like the Grinch is saying it for some reason. And I, I think that he's doing good work here. Personally, I just I was not thrilled to see him here because I think I've kind of all, all, I think I've seen all he has to offer before. I like his style when he's really really like versatile and he's drawing people in different kinds of clothing. Like a lot of the, the Gotham City Sirens covers, like there was this, there one cover with Catwoman and Taya that looked very very like like uh, international or otherworldly or whatever. But typically when he draws like basic comic books where the characters are kind of you know in the same action poses and stuff, I don't think it really. I think it wears out its welcome a little too fast, at least for me. I'm not essentially saying the art was bad here, but for me, I was sort of like, I was sort of, I probably would have preferred another artist, or would at least, maybe the script would have given more him more to do. But I, I wasn't really, it wasn't so much I wasn't feeling it as it was, it was I wasn't really down for him being on, on the comic. But I, I will fully admit that that's a personal thing. I didn't know that he was an erotic artist, although that definitely doesn't surprise me. Um... Unlike Don, I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever really been that big a fan of Gear March. I quite enjoyed some of his work in Catwoman recently, but uh, I think it's just his style. And like Don was saying, I think the colouring doesn't always help, but it's generally too... Um, I don't know, there's something, there's something about this. I think it's quite scratchy. A lot of the uh, his shading just seems to be sort of scribbly lines all over the place, which I'm not really a fan of. The other thing I'm a bit concerned about is just... I don't remember a series where Guillermo March was the artist and he managed to finish it. And I'm not sure if he left Catwoman to do this and get a head start on it or if he just started sort of getting slow on it. But, I mean, even that three-issue arc he did in Batman and Robin, um, Volume 1, even that, that was three issues and he, did, he only did, like, one and a half of those. So I'm not sure how long he's going to stay the artist on this. Like I said, if, it, if it's, he left Catwoman to do this then hopefully he's had a head start and will be able to finish it and carry it on. But, I mean, like I said, I'm not that big of a fan of his art, but for continuity's sake, it would be nice if there was just one solid artist on the on the book. Um, I actually liked him on this, and I think in the beginning I read his name, but it was one of those things where you sort of see something, but you don't really see it, if that makes sense. Like, you don't really cognitively respond that oh this is Guillaume March I need to be prepared but then I realized oh this looks so familiar oh because he was on Catwoman I do have to say I'm I I enjoy this much better than Catwoman you know someone I think may have thrown out the word gratuitous I, I feel like it wasn't as bad as Catwoman perhaps it's because you know he has um a good body Oh, well, I was going to say because he is a man and not like a female. And so like that's, you know, not um, kind of overdone. Uh, I just flipped to this panel where, um, you know, where the hell are my pants? And he kind of reminds me of Jack Nicholson there, which is funny. So, you know, the naked thing, someone commented on this. And I, too, was like, well, what is going on here? Because, you know, why does he have to have a nakedness? But it, it did make sense in the scheme of things because I kind of thought through it when I first read it. And the fact that he is an escape artist. And so I think the town was sort of thinking ahead and saying, well, he could use anything. So he's kind of stripping him naked, um, which, you know, I think in the end was great just because then he he um, thought forward to something or thought back to something he had learned and Houdini and we sort of get a little peek there into his training and, and what he had been taught. And I think 
I also like this naked scene, which I know, giggity, giggity, but I like it because it also sort of refers back to, I think, the um, the origin of the talent that was in Nightwing because he, too, was, like, really being brutalized when he was naked. I remember he had a, he had a, well, he was in that chokey, and then he had to climb that barbed wire. So I think, in a way, I mean, I don't know if Guillaume March, you know, did that intentionally, but I think, in a way, it sort of connects. And so I'm okay in that in that sort of instance. There are certain panels that are really weird, like that old man that looks like the Vulture, or um, what's that guy from? Uh, I'm thinking, I'm think from uh, Spider-Man. Uh, he's really old. He's I wouldn't know because I don't know Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> the vulture? No, not the vulture, but the the crime Sil- boss. S- Silvermane. Yes, Silvermane. Sorry, I can't remember. <laughs> but this useless body of mine <laughs> needs it. <laughs> oh, God. So, anyways, they kind of. But I I thought that he did a good job on this, and well, I don't know if what Joe said is correct, but I I hope you know as long as we read it, we get to see Guillaume, and hopefully he keeps this up. I didn't think the toe porn or the foot porn was as bad as it had been in Catwoman. Um, and I did just think about another point I want to make on the other topic, because actually I really liked that discussion comparing the, the talents. That was a good one. Uh, is that he has a heart, right? And I remember, especially in the Batman and Robin one, this one really sticks out, that a lot of them were just blindly following orders and really, like, were not really thinking about the consequences or anything. But there were some of them that really sort of stopped and thought about what they were doing or they had some sort of connection with the hero that they were fighting. And this is one of them, I I think, that he connects in that way because he stops and he sees, I mean, I have to end the bloodline not only with the daughter of this chairperson, uh, but also with her daughter, who is a two-year-old. And so he stops and thinks about that. And I think that that sort of sets him apart and sort of connects to some of the other ones. But this could be, you know, a good character to to continue reading about. All right, so then my, my last point that I want to talk about is the the future of Talon. How, you know, Don kind of mentioned this earlier when we talked about the likelihood of this series continuing. Um, but my big thing is, the reality is, this is a different character, but this is actually the third character now in the DC Universe that originates from Haley Circus, Dick Grayson, and Deadman being the other two. So my question is, how long... Do you actually see this series lasting? Me personally, I think this could last. The problem is it's going to have to end up being like Batwing where it has so many connections to the Batman universe just to keep it going. Now, honestly, we don't know. I mean, it's hard to judge off one issue. But I like the idea of the escape artist. But at the same time, I'm not sure how much escape artist type skills are really going to come into play when he's actually needing to actually fight people. That's my biggest concern. So... I don't know, honestly, how long this could last. I think it will get at least a year run before they decide to give up on it if it doesn't do well. But I think the concept is really cool. I just The problem is I just think that it's going to have a hard time finding its grounds first without setting itself right in the middle of the Batman universe. I think that, uh, well, one, it's just, um, I don't think this issue was great or bad enough to fully judge on just this initial, uh, you know, story. I think that uh, I would agree that, um, like Batwing, it needs to kind of stay within Gotham and the Batman universe. I don't think that... I think that the character honestly deserves more than just being a Batman side character. I think that his story is interesting enough where he can kind of branch out and do his own thing. 
He can, he can be born from the Batman comics, but he doesn't have to be beholden to Batman comics and always encounter Nightwing or Robin or somebody. And, um... Or Penguin. Or Penguin. <laughs> uh, I think he has a better chance than Batwing. Honestly, because I think Batman, Batwing actually does have a lot of, like, baggage with, uh... I don't know. Not everybody wants to read about the, 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 the troubles in Africa. Myself included. Um, I think that this issue... People might like it. People might be attracted to the art. Uh, I think that, uh, personally for me, it wasn't, it was a little, the way it was told was a little uh, kind of by the numbers and basic that I'm not sure that it really was different enough where people had to come back issue after issue after issue. So I'm not saying it was bad, but I don't think it was as hard-hitting enough as I think they were advertising at a SCCC. Then, then again, I mean, I, I didn't expect much from SCCC in, in the first place. So I would say that maybe, yeah, I would say I would give it at least a year, a solid year. I think even if it doesn't do well, DC would still have it have it cling on for a little while. I can't I can't see it being canceled around issue eight or whatever. I don't think it's going to be that bad. Um, and obviously, we'll have to see what the sales figures are uh, by the end of this month. But um, I think I don't think it's going to last terribly long. Like it's going to be a mainstay of the DC universe. I, I give it about uh, two years tops. If, and I guess that sounds kind of negative. But to me, I think it's a, a genuinely interesting story. But I'm not sure if it's the way it was told was interestingly enough to, to earn it a long stay, if that makes any sense. I enjoy this issue a lot more than I thought it would. I thought it was stronger than I thought it would be. But like I was saying earlier, I just don't see how this uh, could really last all that long. I mean, we only really heard about what's going to happen in the first arc so wherever there's like a natural story progression or if uh, Tinian kind of thinks oh, I can go here with this and it's an interesting storyline then he might become his own character and it evolve into like this really great book but at the moment it just feels like it's a spin-off book and I, I don't think that it's got much weight behind it to last. I should also mention the fact that uh, although an idea of a skateboard superhero is pretty cool, I know he's not re- reappeared yet, or at least I don't think he has, but DC does have Mr. Miracle. So it's yeah. not like a wholly original idea. I'm not saying it's a That's bad true, yeah. idea to do, but yeah. It's, but he it's, is it's more not, like, no, I mean, since he is a new god, Scott Free is, then, I mean, this at least is like more down to earth, so to speak. And that's what I was, the other thing I was going to say is, James Tinian has kind of set this up as a book about a guy running away from everything. So I'm not sure how successful a book is going to be when it's basically the main character just running. Although I guess Lord of the Rings is pretty popular. So <laughs> I don't know if that's comparable. But, um, dish. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's tough to say. Like, right now, I probably would agree with all the fellows, and that it it probably will not last the long haul. But I think it has the potential to. And I think that, you know, if there are people out there that enjoy different types of stories, and and even if it's only obliquely related to Batman, and maybe people enjoy that and don't want to see Batman all the time, which is, you know, Batwing, I think he's still connected to Batman, but... You know, he's separated enough that he can be his own character and you can enjoy his adventures. I think that we can see that here. And I feel like, um, you know, Donovan said, let's not have a, a team up of the week sort of thing. Uh, well, I mean, don't put words in his mouth, but that's kind of what he was saying. And, 
you know, I feel like right now he's so far separated from the Bat family that I, I feel like that would not happen. And if you ran into Batman, wouldn't Batman have a negative reaction to him? Which I think would actually be like great storytelling right there is sort of him. He's on the run from the talents and he's on, oh wait, he's on the run from the owls and Batman and sort of like, where is he supposed to be? So it has potential. I'm just afraid that people now have just been have been bitten in a bad way. Or they're just not willing to try new things that this may not, you know, get off. Because let's look at what Batwing is right now, you know. All right. So overall, I'm going to give Talon number zero a total of three and a half out of five batterings. I am going to give Talon number zero a two and a half out of five batterings. I'm not saying it was bad, but I'm saying it needs to be better to survive. Like I said, I enjoyed this more than I thought I would. I'll give it three out of five batterings. And I give it four out of five batterings. All right, so that's going to give Talon number zero a total of three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next title, Red Hood and the Outlaws, number zero. We captured Red X. Dude, it has to be Jason Todd. I told ya, Jason Todd. Am I? Who else looks like Robin and wears a mask? Oh, got it. Speedy. Red Hood and the Outlaws, number zero, written by Scott Lobdell, with art by Pascal Ferry, Iguara, and Brett Booth. The issue is an origin for Jason Todd, starting off with how his parents met. His mother, Catherine Elizabeth, high school student turned drug addict, met his father, Willis Todd, a sleazy, womanizing drunk, where they immediately have sex, she gives birth to a bastard child, and Jason Todd is brought into the world. Jason has a tough life, looking after both his parents and dealing with their addictions from a young age until his father is taken away to prison where he dies, and his mother also dies from a drug overdose. From then on, Jason has to steal to survive, but on one occasion gets severely beaten. He wakes up in Leslie Tompkins' clinic and repays her for her kindness by attempting to steal prescription drugs, but is caught by Batman as he clambers out the window. Batman begins to arrest Jason, but after words from Dr. Tompkins, he instead takes Jason to Wayne Manor. After a while at Wayne Manor, Bruce reveals his true identity and trains Jason up as the second Robin. After a while, Jason becomes too violent and is put on monitor duty as punishment, but it is there that he sees an image of his mother somewhere in the Middle East. Jason travels out to track her down, as Robin for some reason, but, realize, but realizes the whole thing was a trap when he's jumped by the Joker and, and his infamous crowbar. The final panel is of Jason opening his eyes, floating in the Lazarus pit. But then the issue is hijacked by the Joker, who reveals he created the Red Hood. Through his narration, we see how he orchestrated Jason becoming Robin, also that he could, also that he could kill him to further torment Batman. However, the Joker is unaware of the Lazarus pits, so is convinced that Jason simply bursts out of the grave as Red Hood. So. That was Red Hood in the Outlaws number zero, and I guess the first pretty major thing to talk about is the difference between this and Red Hood's uh, established origin. And I mean, I think the main thing that comes to mind is the fact that he was brought back to life via a Lazarus pit, which we saw in Batman Under the Red Hood, the animated film. And I think when we did the commentary for that, Batman Universe commentaries, go check it out if you haven't listened to it. We were kind of saying how that made more sense, or at least was a kind of easier 
way to understand how Jason Todd would be brought back to life. But I was wondering what you guys thought about that. I I honestly thought it was a good way of bringing him back to life because, you know, if you have the Superboy Prime punches a wall kind of thought, the thing is with that is that, you know, within the New 52, that clearly hasn't happened. We don't have a Superboy Prime, so you can't really explain it. And when we did the commentary, I really, I thought it was a good way of bringing the character back and making it work. Um, at the same at the same point, it also kind of works with that Red Hood um, series, the Lost Days that that happened before the New Fifty Two as well, where it explains a little bit more of that too. Where that doesn't necessarily you know get rid of that thought either. Um, they just changed the fact that he you know was in fact the Lazarus Pit that brought him back and not the random punch. So I thought it was a good idea. I didn't mind it at all because um, I think that the Lazarus Pit idea just works in the batman universe context uh i think that like it was a, a, just in terms of application it was a mistake to have a character like jason todd's resurrection which is a huge thing in the batman universe tie into a continuity uh changing kind of like crossover in which the characters themselves i don't think batman i don't think they ever actually figured out that it, jason todd uh, uh superboy prime's reality punch was what it brought him back to life i don't remember if they did or not i don't think they did and the Lazarus Pit just makes, honestly, just makes more sense. And it was in the original, it was in the origin in a bit because he was dumped in the Lazarus Pit eventually. But like, that's not what initially brought him back. So I think that like that, legitimately being what brings him back, uh, is fine. Now that being said, they don't, I don't think they explain why Rachel Ghoul brings him back to life, or if it was even him, or who put him there. But I suppose you know we can't fit that in the series. Well. Uh, saying that, yeah, I thought that they kind of did that a bit quick, and I think it makes more sense to put him in the Lazarus Pit, but they didn't really explain what that was for any new readers. And it it's a very quick, just two panels of him being dunked in, like, some green liquid. But then if you read the back of the issue and it says, you know, who's you in the new 52, it mentions Talia in the, about the Lazarus Pit, so I think it's still kind of assume that it was Rachel Gould and Talia that brought him back to life, but it doesn't say that in this issue explicitly. That relationship ended when Jason was murdered by the Joker, then resurrected by Taya al Ghul. Yeah, she doesn't appear at all, or is even mentioned. No, 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 you see her. Um, Yeah, yeah, there's a scene, um, I think it's in the Joker, of course, back up, where, uh... (laughs) You you see her right now. You, you see someone in, in a black uh, cat suit like standing over Jason's grave. I assume that was, was his mum. She's got the the brown the uh, in, in a in hair. a full black cat suit. Well, it's, a, it's not a jacket. It's not a cat suit. Oh okay, but I, I don't have the book in front of me, but I remember seeing it. Like oh cool, that's Tally. Well, I mean, there's also a question of whether his mom died or not, because I don't think that's explicit in the story. Yeah, they they definitely don't explain that she died. In fact, because. You know, they showed Robin getting beat by the Joker and his mom standing there with a gun pointed to her head. But, you know, that's not necessarily when the bomb goes off because, as we know, the Joker's not actually there either. It's it's a simplification of the origin, and uh, it does beg some questions about the rules of the Lazarus Pit. Because I remember you couldn't just stick a dead person in the Lazarus Pit if they've been dead for a certain amount of time and they come out all right. But it's... The Lazarus Pit is almost, like, vague enough, like, with with its rules that I don't mind them stretching in a bit, and like other people. So the Superboy Prime thing probably should have never been in there, and this just, this makes it much easier. Well, I mean, yeah, the only other thing that I could really pick up on was um, how Jason ends up at the, at Wayne Manor, 
of course, instead of being found stealing the wheels off the Batmobile, he's trying to steal prescription drugs. Which <laughs> Let's is, talk about that. It's not so much a big thing, at least for me, but it kind of it will lead into my next discussion point a bit. Here, here's here's the problem, and like I think that like if we're going to stick on the, uh, I'm not uh, I'm not sure if, if Dustin's going to cut me off and says no, you can't talk about that till just now, but like if we're going to kind of go and take the issue as a whole, and go with the idea that you know. And he could be lying, but he probably isn't. That Joker somehow orchestrated this. It it falls apart because you're telling me that like the Joker's just stuck Jason Todd outside of Leslie Tompkins' clinic, and somehow knew that Batman would adopt him. There's not enough information for the Joker to go on to to reach that conclusion. And um, before, I mean, even before then, we get the the story is told through narration and, and little dialogue. I, I'm looking at the image now where Batman is like about to arrest Jason, and Leslie looks like she's protesting. Jason doesn't even know what, what she says to him, so Batman goes from arresting him to adopting him, which, one, <laughs> I don't think Leslie Thompson would actually suggest, and it's not like, you know, it's not like Jason didn't break the law or wasn't trying to steal something. It's not like Batman just came in there and decided to beat up Jason, so that's kind of in, it's inconsistent. But going back to the whole Joker thing, what we're told in this issue, and it could be contradicted, you know, by an interview later on, is that the Joker, you know, found had an idea to to mess with Batman, found a homeless kid, uh, beat up, stuck him in front of a, a clinic. Somehow knew that Batman would not only find him there, but make him Robin, and orchest and somehow orchestrated events that would have the boy go across to Africa, and or the Middle East, I guess this this is, and uh, kill him. Just for lols, and I'm not gonna lie, it's an interesting concept, but the app, but the way it goes about it doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't. Even if you were to say that, like, he know even knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman, it's still assuming the fact that 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 he would find Jason Todd at Leslie Thompson Clinic, or you know, why wouldn't he do this with other orphans? I mean, I'm not saying that Batman runs into orphans every day, but he runs into them more often than people would imagine. And it's just that whole point. Because up, up to now, I think the, 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 the origin was fine, but, like, up to then, that, that sort of joke at the end just... Because I remember Lobdell saying in an interview that Joker and Jason's relationship would be closer here than it would be in the previous continuity. And this is what he was talking about. He needs to do a lot better job because right now it just doesn't make any sense at all. Like, can, can, can anyone else figure out how this works? Well, piggybacking on Don's point, the, my problem with this and a lot of these zero issues in general is it feels like instead of retellings or new versions of these origins, that it's watered-down versions of the old origins. Like, yeah. um, Jason's original origin, well, his original post-crisis origin that this is mostly based off of, was like a three- or four-issue storyline. I don't remember if it was three or four issues, but it was more than two. And Death in the Family was a four-issue storyline. So that's at least seven issues right there. You're trying to cram that into like a 20-page comic, and there's you either do a new story that can work in a 20-page comic, or you don't try and cram seven issues in a 20-page comic, because it's just, like, they hit story points, like, oh, he goes to look for his mom because she's alive. Okay, why was she, even though they try and explain in the backup, why was she still alive? How come when she realized, hey, I'm not dead, she didn't look for her son? Why was she on the computer? Why did he not know about her? Why was she in Saudi Arabia? Why was she working with the Joker? It's, he went, they, they hit these points that are in the old story simply because they're in the old story. And if, if you're a new reader and if you don't know about the old continuity, it just raises more questions than it answers. It's You're going through the motions. You're hitting the story beats because they're there instead of 
Do something else that works in a 20-page comic. Don't try and, like, cram, you know, seven issues worth of stuff in one issue. Because it's just ridiculous. We we don't get to see his relationship with Bruce at all developed. Therefore, we don't care when, you know, when, when he dies. We don't feel sorry for Bruce at all. We don't see any of that. We're just told, oh, he was rebellious, oh, it's this and that. And that was a major handicap of not only this issue, but a lot of these zero issues as well. Because they either should have been longer or they shouldn't have tried to cram them. <laughs> Bertoni out. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it, it, unless anybody wants to jump in there, I don't want to talk too much. I, I but... do want to say one thing, though, because I want okay, to go, go back right to ahead. your Joker thing. The, the, the interesting thing about... You know, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the whole Joker backup and how that plays in. Here's here's my thought, okay? I I looked at this as the Joker believes that. Because the issue is if the Joker actually did, you know, plant Jason Todd to become the Robin, there's, there's so many holes with that that it just can't work. Because the reality is, okay, so the Joker shows that he puts, uh, bat, he puts Jason Todd at Leslie T- Tompkins' uh, clinic, which... You know, just so happens to be the same doctor and clinic that Batman and all of his uh, allies attend. So that's the first thing. So somehow Joker deduced that. But then later, when Joker or when uh, Jason Todd actually dies, um, the 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 thing that's interesting is Joker shows the fact that he's he's watching the funeral. So he knew exactly where he knows that Batman is Bruce Wayne. What? I mean, like, possibly, yeah. I mean, to me, it's just like, okay, so that's just basically giving everything away. Joker now is the only villain who has figured out exactly who Batman is, because obviously, as Jason Todd gets brought into the the mix with Batman, well, all it's going to take is seeing who Jason Todd is with outside of the costume to figure out who the kid is, or who to figure out who Batman is. So, I mean, like, I don't really get the point of the backup. I mean, like, I don't have any problems with the main issue. The backup is the only thing that was just like, what, why is this even here? This is basically making Joker out to be this person who not only orchestrated something that he could have never actually done, but is basically making it as if Joker knows exactly who Batman is. Yeah, I mean, this was and actually... that's too big of a thing. Sorry. Okay, and this, uh, this whole Joker thing is actually going to be my third discussion point, but... Uh, I, I completely agree. It's just it's this kind of like chaos that kind of everything just like happens to like work out this perfect little plan and everything works out and it's it's ridiculous. And then on top of that, like Dustin was just saying, then the the only way that the only outcome from this like is that he's gonna know who Batman is. That's just like unless Joker's like they try and address More that in the story stupid. because the guy says that's Will Todd's kid and the Joker cuts him out like no I don't want to know any names so I guess that was you know the writer's way of saying ah but he never knew anyone's name so it's okay everyone's secret that is say but there, there's no way that, that, would, that he would still not like know or get an inkling he's, he's, he's watching, watching Bruce the Wayne cry over that <laughs> yeah he, he's watching the funeral so the writer's oh well it's okay because he never knew the name he, like he interrupted the henchman and how randomly like killing his mom okay okay well, here, well here's the thing i mean besides the fact that there are more holes in this than spongebob squarepants it's like if if he knows that bruce wayne is batman even though it's never actually said in the text that he does why i mean 
editorial must have gone crazy over this story. I mean, because think about it. You can't have that in a comic and just pretend to the reader that it doesn't exist. At least with the Morrison issues, where, like, an R.I.P. Where, where Batman was running around without his mask right in front of the Joker, there was plausible deniability due to the art and the fact that he never addressed him. Like, I mean, and I'm not saying that Joker absolutely does not know who Batman is, but at the same time, here it's like, you know, there's no freaking doubt. It's like he's staring it right in the face, and we can't pretend that, you know, he's ignoring it. There's the, 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 the tomb says, says Jason Todd, you know, Bruce Wayne and Batman are the exact same build, you know, and he's watching Bruce Wayne cry over Jason Todd right after he killed Robin, which the, 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 if Tim Drake can figure this out, the Joker can figure this out. It's a basic thing. That's, and that's, that, that's just solely for the Joker. I'm still trying to get right around in my head, like, like, I mean, the, the idea for this, I can see some, I can see Lobdell, I can hear him now saying, well, the, you know, the reason why the Joker did this is because, it's because he's crazy. And that's not good enough. If you are relying on a character's insanity to tell this big of a retcon, then it's then you're being lazy and disingenuous. I mean, I was I agree. The main story I have no problem with because besides the the fact that that I agree with Josh that like it just hitting character be, uh, story beats and not really developing Jason as a character or his relationship with Batman. By and large, I didn't mind it because it was at least providing an origin story that like you know I could uh, attach to. But this at the end is like you know such a troll joke. And it's like, you know, we can't, we can't ignore this. We can't say, oh, well, tune in next time. Or, you know, this, this stops us cold with Red Hood and the Outlaws because it's like, what are we supposed to go on? You know, what, and this has nothing to do with the old continuity. What are we supposed to take information from? You know, whether it's retconned or not. And it's like, this, this really just really, it, it, it shows me that they're not thinking that hard about the character's origins. They're just putting them in there just, just to do it. And they're not developing it enough to really have the readers go on them is my main thing. Well, I think the last thing I wanted to quickly touch upon, and I think this kind of goes back to what um, Josh was saying about trying to cram way too much into this, is just how long do you think Jason was at the Wayne Manor before Batman was like, oh yeah, you can be Robin, I'll I'll tell you everything? Because it seemed like he was, I mean, he's there for a page, and then it's revealed on the next page that he's Batman and stuff, and it just, I'm, it. So it must be just down to the writing and how much they're trying to cram in this, but it just feels like Batman didn't wait at all before he was like, oh yeah, I've got a new orphan in my house, you can be the next Robin. I think, yeah, if this was a backup in an annual, and not like, it, it, this would be, if this was a backup in an annual a few years ago, like retelling the story, it would be different, it would be acceptable, but because they're trying to like reintroduce it, it's supposed to be the starting point for the new continuity that that that's where it fails i think the, exactly I, I think the biggest problem with it is the fact that they did try to fit so much into it but and and then you've got scenes like him getting to Wayne Manor and then almost you know within the next page finding out that he's going to be the new Robin and to me it's just there's too much that happened. I mean, the thing is, they didn't necessarily need to dwell on so much of his of his past before he meets Batman, because realistically, that was never really dealt with that much before in the yeah. New Fifty Two. Anyway, Whoa. so they spent like half the book talking about how he came from this broken home and how how he was conceived next to a dumpster and how his parents had, you know, were addicts for cer certain substances and things like that. And to me, it's just like, why do we need to spend so much time focusing on the fact that he came from a troubled home and not so much time on the fact that, 
you know, he came to be the new Robin and, you know, that whole situation where he first meets Batman too. Well, you say that, but I actually think that beginning bit's one of the better bits of the book because that's where the most time is spent and you actually start to feel sorry for Jason. If you're going to take any part out of the book, take the Joker bit out at the end. Oh, I agree with that. Exactly. Definitely. I also think the fact that, like, um, kind of going on to what you you guys just said, half of the book is, is talking about his parents, who, again, got, like, next to nothing. I mean, we knew, we knew that the names were the same. You know, we knew that they were, you know, bad, but more or less. But, like, why are, why are, the, why are the parents the main characters in this book in the first half as opposed to Jason? We should see, like, you know, we shouldn't see his conception. We should see his life with his parents, then his life with Batman, and then ending with his death. Like, Batman, we, we, we see information, but we don't see, like, what it was like to live with Bruce Wayne. What did he think of Bruce Wayne and Alfred? You know, like, like, like what, he, he was just there, but, like, what is his perception being a psychic, being, like, working with the Batman? Like, how does that influence his character? Not just the fact that he was a street kid. His life with Batman has to influence him as Red Hood, because that's why we care about the character, isn't it? I mean, that's the, that's the idea that they're trying to get across, but they just didn't do it a very good way. I still think you're Jason Alright, so Red Hood and the Outlaws number zero, I will give a total of two and a half out of five batarangs. Give me an I, I do actually I'm sorry, uh, I forgot. Sorry. I do actually like the costume he's wearing as Robin, like the red mask. I think it's kinda neat. But besides that, this gets a point five. I'm sorry. Point five out of five batarangs. Yeah, I was writing on a three point five for the first half of this book, even though it was uh, a lot crammed into too small a space. I was enjoying it and then the Joker back up, whatever you want to call it, that brought it down to a two. I really didn't enjoy that aspect of the book. 2.5 out of 5 batterings. Hey, Stella. <laughs> One battering out of 5. Unacceptable. You either pick a story that'll work in a 20-page comic, or you make it a 5-issue miniseries. Alright, so that is going to give Red Hood and the Outlaws number 0 a total of 2 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into Batwoman number 0. Okay, Batwoman number zero, interlude. J.H. Williams III, co-writer and artist. W. Hayden Blackman, co-writer. Dave Stewart, colorist. And Todd Klein, letterer. Kate records a message to her father, which she will never send. She explains that she always did this before a mission in the event that she does not return. She did this up until the night Beth fell from the plane and she learned that her dead sister was not really dead. The night she began hating her father. But she's giving the message another go since she is about to face someone out of her league wonder woman in the past jacob would give the girl in the past jacob would give the girls a kiss on the head and tell them to take care of each other though it seemed more for kate than beth's benefit as we see beth getting bullied and kate protecting her but kate never had beth's self-control at Beth and their mother's funeral, Kate has trouble picking things out in her grief, and Jacob shows how caring he is by staying with her and helping her with her clothes and by holding her hand through the ceremony. Kate was going to be okay because she had her father. Kate admits that she wanted to be just like her father with top grades, all-state gymnastics, and West Point, but without her father, things were more difficult, and she tried to find the strength to weather anything in the arms of many females like Renee Montoya, but this didn't really work out, and she found herself kicked out of West Point. 
Later, she found solace in drinking, and Jacob continued to care for her. We then see Kate in her first meeting with Batman outside of Molly's bar. This created a new drive in her where she made deals with shady ex-Marines for equipment, going out at night, and even taking people out. Deep down, she was happy that Jacob found out in the end. He set her up with a murder of crows, a group of men he worked alongside doing God knows what in every hellhole around the globe. They took her around the world, leaping across buildings in Tokyo, ripping down a mountainside in a glider suit, weaving through London traffic on a motorcycle, and being trapped slash trained in a torture chamber beneath Paris, where she learned to fight through the pain and continue on. She learned how to fight, how to survive. She then got down to business solving true crimes and taking out scumballs, fighting for the victims. In Africa, while hunting down warlords, she realized this was her father's attempt to get her out of the hero business, but it doesn't take and she's ready to leave. The next day, she got a call from her father that Russian extremists had kidnapped some wealthy politician's family and holding them hostage. Uh, she takes out the men on the outside and gets inside to see that the family had already been slaughtered. She went after the murderer and put his own knife to his throat just before she drops it. It was then that the act was revealed and the curtain pulled back. Jacob was the man in the room with the devil mask and the bodies were fake with fake blood. But it pulled her to the edge and she never fell in. This was the final test. She left as a lost girl and came back to Gotham knowing exactly who she was. At least this is what she thought. Jacob did everything for his little girl except tell her the one thing that mattered. And on that plane, when Beth fell, Kate learned that after being betrayed, betrayed by the one person she could trust, she could only continue the fight alone. And that was when she finally became Batwoman. I gotta go. I gotta go find Medusa, rescue those kids, make things right with Maggie. I gotta go be Batwoman. I love you, Dad. Okay, so I just have to say that this was uh, by far my favorite number zero out of this entire batch. I just thought it was amazing. Um, you know, just I, I kind of want to start off with like these really, you know, Dustin throws out these like really great discussion questions and then Jill and then he comes to me. Well, I, I have this like, um, you know, how well does this work as an origin? Uh, it doesn't make you want to continue reading about Kate and I kind of want to like think about it as if you were a new reader sort of put yourself in a new reader do you think that they would continue reading it and then as you are experienced with this character how does this work for you does it sort of um, hold up to the the Kate that you know and hopefully love and I would just like to say that I think this did a fantastic job of you know go, kind of going through her origin I had read her run in Detective it holds up with that beautifully um, it, it repeats some things but it certainly doesn't delve into them and it also shows different scenes as well and I don't know like if, if I were a new reader and I thought okay I'm going to try this it's a number zero I'm going to try to get into this character I think that I would be, um, I'd be really intrigued. I think that maybe as a new reader, I would be maybe slightly confused because, you know, she is sort of um, dashing through several scenes in her life. But I think that it's well told, and I think that it is, for the most part, easy to follow, and it certainly grabbed me. I would agree. Um, I, I have still not read that original de de Batwoman Detective comic storyline because I'm lazy. But uh, I remember reading the uh, like the other... The other zero issue, uh, 
I think a year ago, and really falling in love with the character then, and I think this kind of reiterated that. I've been kind of hot and cold on Batwoman lately. I don't think I don't ever think it's bad, but I think that like uh, it never intrigues me as much. But I like character-driven drama, and I thought this was great. I I think that this illustrated Kate's character more than the series does sometimes. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of this is kind of new to me. I don't really know as much about the backstory between her and her father and her sister as uh, Joe Dustin, Josh, and Stella do. But uh, this provided some uh, back history. I think the art was excellent. Kind of, you know, to kind of... Um, it's just J.H. Williams' art, obviously. But also, um, I'm trying to remember who illustrated uh, the, the, the non-painted scenes. Um, J.H. Williams as well. Yeah. Oh, really? It was he awesome. has like a million different styles. Yeah, because it doesn't look like his non-painted style. Okay. Yeah, that that was excellent. It looked like Cliff Chang to me. Um, and I, I just, I, I just, there's not much I can, I can really describe. Although there was one, this, this one minor note. There was one, the shot of Batman, which looks excellent. He's wearing his uh, yellow oval bat symbol, which I'm not sure if they want to like, you know, if Scott Lobdell wants to call the editors to get after. But that was, I just found that interesting. But yeah, I agree. This, this was. Uh, High quality uh, storytelling. I thought it was a. I thought it was a good story. My initially, when I started reading through the issue, I thought to myself, "Well, there is a lot, a lot of dialogue in this book," and quite honestly, I think there was probably enough dialogue in this book to like be three normal issues, based off of everything there was. But the format of it and the context worked perfectly. It not only described what we've already seen, but it. You know, showed a little bit more of some of the in-between pieces of what we we didn't see in the original Batwoman number zero, and in the original all the past Batwoman issues, including the Detective Comics run. So, it was nice that uh, you know it, it, you know this book is exactly what they said, where it leads perfectly to what's going on with what's you know the current story arc. Even though this happened in the middle of a story arc, it doesn't you know forget the fact that that happened or that that story arc is happening it, it works perfectly so i mean i thought it was great writing yeah and i agree i think going back to what stella was saying about does this inspire does this make you want to read more it definitely does i think this is gone back to the first few issues of batwoman where i was just so excited to read it every every month and this is getting me back to that because i thoroughly enjoyed this issue i agree i think it was definitely the the best of the zero issues Awesome. Um, I, I'm glad to hear, you know, all around. So Dustin, you know, smart man that he is, sort of touches upon my second topic, which was, yeah, the format. Uh, just images and narration telling the story rather than dialogue, I would say. Uh, and there was only one page, and this is her first meeting with Batman, that really bothered me because the red on the black, it was, it was kind of hard to read. So I wish they would have used something better. But, yeah, it was really wordy. But I just, you know, like Dustin said, I thought that this was a great way. Rather than having speech bubbles and, and all these other characters already popping through, it's her, ver- it's her story. It's coming from her mouth. It's everything that happened to her, everything that she felt when it was going on. And this was something that I really found powerful in the Batman and Robin issues where, if you recall, he was recording a message to Damien um, when he was going to find him with nobody. And we were wondering, oh, is he ever going to hear this? And and this is sort of, um, I mean, this definitely reminds me of that. You know, if someone, 
is going to record something, but in the back of their mind, they know they're never going to get it. Like when Tony, Tony Gordon wrote that letter to Babs and never sent it to her. That's pre-crisis people. Um, I think that they put a lot more of their heart on the page and you get um, really a, a bigger view or a deeper insight in, into the character as a whole. And I thought that even though it was wordy, I, I loved it. And, and I just loved having her as a mouthpiece throughout the entire issue. So what was your thought um, on, on this format? I think that even though it was really wordy and there was loads of text, it didn't matter because it was really well written and it almost felt like more than a comic book to me. I don't know if you sort of know what I mean, but it was... I think just because of how impressive the art is and just I, how well written it was that it felt like I wasn't just reading a 22-page comic. It felt like the actual history of this character and it was... Something about it was just really impressive all the way through. And uh, just touching on the art quickly as well, I I prefer um, Williams's normal style. I'm not sure. I hope he's not changed into this. I'm hoping this was more because it's like... You know, it's in the past, and it's more like to associate with the history and giving it a slightly older look. I'm not sure, but it was still fantastic. It was still really well rendered and fantastic art. So, like I said, it's a really great issue. I think a lot of what makes this issue uh, so good is the fact that the art is very expressive. Um, compared to uh, like compared to Red Hood and the Outlaws, there was there there were a lot of panels that would kind of move quickly. And I think that like the art and that issue, and a lot, a lot of these issues rely on it to kind of tell the story quickly because these these stories are so contextualized. You know, the, the, a lot of this is, there's a lot of exposition in these stories for for obvious reasons. But this one, I think a lot of times when you ever saw, you saw Kate, she had, her expressions really told the story in a way that like you didn't need dialogue because because much of this is such narration. Like the scene where she's uh, running uh, in a torture chamber beneath Paris the look on her face and the look of her face when she's like uh, in Prague and the, just the, the look on her face when she uh, is attacking her father without knowing that it's her father when she sees like the supposed dead bodies. I mean, the, all, that's that's what makes the storytelling of this of this book so so visceral because you can believe in the characters based on what you're seeing, not just on, you know, like, like well, you know, my life sucks and this is why. Like, we, don't, we don't need to be told that we see it. That's what I think makes it work. My, my thing is... I. I I, like I said, it was wordy, but ultimately the format of it made perfect sense. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that he designed it to be, a, you know, the entire book was basically a message with just these images of what she was, her message was actually trying to get across. It, it worked perfectly. I love the format. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It also, I, I also wonder what it would be like without any words whatsoever. And, you know, way back when, you know, I was, when I was a small child uh, and I got picture books from the library, what was great about picture books is that you sort of inserted, you know, your own thoughts and everything. I just wonder how well sort of those images hold up to what's being told. And for the most part, I think that they really back up what's going on, you know, her facial features and everything. I mean, I just, I think I'll always remember those sort of panels where, you know, she hit the bar a little too hard and she's, um, she was talking about the feel of, of the, uh, um, porcelain, you know, on her forehead and just like her father helping her out. And that's just was really powerful for me. The final thing I wanted to talk about is this is a really 
awesome uh, father-daughter tale, I think, um, at the heart of it. And, you know, they were really close, and then it's really heartbreaking that they've kind of had this this fallout, and now, you know, you can kind of see her maybe taking Beth's advice and, and trying to let it go and, and perhaps growing from this. And this is something that I thought was going to happen in Batgirl number zero because it starts off with her talking about her father, but it doesn't really. And... Batwoman is a powerful, she's probably the only, besides Catwoman, the only um, other female, um, strong female that we've got in the Bat family here that is good. And, <laughs> well, I mean, no, I mean good as in like. No, no, know, no, 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 you mean, you mean strong female. Oh, so I just wondered, how does this zero issue compare to Batgirl number zero? Either if you take it, you could take this in many different ways, either in, you know, the relationship, because Batgirl number zero turned out to be more of a, a James Jr. bad story, or just in how it represents the actual character. In, in my opinion, I mean, we've already talked about Batgirl number zero, but I, I think that this does a better job. It, it holds up to her origin better. And uh, it paints, it portrays her as a stronger character, I think, even in her weaker moments. And I think most of all, I think it really shows, like, her purpose for being Batwoman. And I think that was something that we had discussed that Batgirl number zero had been lacking is that she goes to Gotham to see this, uh, you know, this bat suit that they had sort of whipped up. And, and then she's kind of becomes Batgirl and she says it gives her a rush and like you know of course she's fighting crime too but why is she doing it and I think that this just sort of you know she doesn't know who she is and then she becomes Kate and then she becomes Batwoman and I think that that line rather than just I'm gonna be Batwoman because I saw Batman I think that this tale is sort of the tale that Batgirl also should I should have had I think when you compare the two actually it kind of brings certain things in the light one way you can kind of, you know, big up something is to kind of tear another thing down in comparison. And a lot of times I think that's kind of a, an easy way out and a kind of a dishonest way. But I think in this instance with Batgirl, that was basically a story of Babs Gordon. Something, something you know, she, she had a weird day, basically. She was at the, the police uh, station. Some losers tried to, you know, incite a riot. She fought the guy. Batman said, good job. She said, I'm going to be Batgirl for the next 12 months. And that's it. <laughs> And, and, like, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just, like, who gives a shit? Or, or I'm sorry, who cares? But uh, this one, it's, like, the story of Kate Kane's life. And, you know, our lives, uh, in, uh, they tell people, you know, how we are, you know, in the present, obviously. You know, we are the sum of our experiences and some of our memories. We're not just, like, just because I went to a comic book store does not mean uh, that's the only reason I'm on this on this podcast. It's, like... There's more to it than that. There's, it rounds out the characters in a three-dimensional way because we're seeing it from different perspectives in their lives, from different events, uh, how those events, how they react to those events based on past events. It's more, you, you're given every which way to look at Kate Kane as a character and understand why the, she is the kind of person she is and why she puts on a costume and fights crime. And, like, honestly, that's just a better way to tell a story than in a one issue where a, a certain event happens. That's, that's all I have. I just thought it was a great issue. All right, so Batwoman number zero, I am going to give a total of four out of five batterings. Uh, I concur. Four out of five batterings. I'm not sure why, but there's just something about it that's drawing me to a five out of five batterings, so that's what I'm going to give it. And so I'm going to agree with my little friend there, and I'm going to give five five out of five. It was, it was really great. I really impress upon you to take the time to get this. 
All right, so Batwoman number zero gets a total of four and a half out of five Batarangs. Let's move into our next book, Batman the Dark Knight number zero. Ah! Where's the truck? Oh, Batman, I told you, it's on the back of the... Where is it? Where's the trigger? Tell me! Tell me where it is! Get over here! Batman The Dark Knight number zero. Written by Greg Hurwitz, uh, illustrated by Miko Suayan and Juan Jose Rip. Inked by Vicente Cifuentes. Colored by Sonia Obak. This is the story of Bruce Wayne's Bruce Wayne dealing as a child and, you know, later as a young man dealing with the death of his parents is called Chill in the Air. You see what they did there. Um, after Bruce Wayne's parents have been, after Thomas and Martha Wayne have been buried, Bruce is still in shock and in, in mourning of, of the aftermath of having them killed. And he's still a child at this point, so he's not like, you know, I must become the bat. He does, he's trying to figure out how to deal with it. Um, so he, he rides his little bike down to Park Row. Uh, you know, later to call it Crime Alley, meets a uh, a vagrant and uh, asks, uh, basically asking, like, did you see anything? You were here when uh, my parents were shot. Did you see anything? I need to know why they were killed. And um, he's wearing his father's watch. So uh, the old guy says, hey, sure, I'll tell you all you need to know. Just give me that watch for payment. And he says, okay, so what did you see? And the guy just says, get out of here, kid. You bother me. So Bruce Wayne runs. Uh, a few years later, he does some digging and learns that his father was a very powerful man. He had a lot of rivals, even though he did so much good for the city. But um, if he digs deeper, he finds out, you know, the, the true secret about Thomas Wayne in Gotham City. Uh, at Roxbury Fielding Academy, some snooty Brentwood, uh, you know, uh, kind of like school. Um, I'm not sure if it's a college or a high school, but Bruce is uh, around teenage age. We see him studying a lot. We see him uh, box. We see him... Um, Apparently, he's in some sort of like creative liter American literature class, uh, but he is still obsessed with the death of his parents because he's the Batman. Uh, we see him learn how to fence. He's a loner because he doesn't go out much and socialize with his friends. We see him graduate. I assume it's high school or college. Um, I, think it's, I think it's high school. Yeah, he, he, we see his 18th birthday party, uh, and still he's obsessed with the death of his parents. He, he re-meets the vagrant and just demands to know... Uh, all information he can about the death of his parents. He demands his watch back. Uh, he goes. He learns that the brand's name who killed his parents was Joe Chill. So he goes to a, a nearby uh, pool hall. Runs to some uh, crazy bikers playing pool. They get in a fight. He takes them out because he's learned how to fight on his own. He eventually sees Joe Chill. Demands to know why he killed the Waynes and, and thinks it's a gigantic conspiracy. Joe Chill is, is a you know messed up drunk, saying he didn't know who, he didn't even know who they were. He just wanted the pearls that his mom had. And um, Bruce is saying the entire time, No, you were an assassin, a gunman. You knew my father was an important target. Why did you kill them? Why? He says, All I want was the pearls. So Bruce pulls out a gun and says, I'm a shooter. But after a while, he, he, he realizes that he doesn't want to do it for reasons which we can kind of guess but aren't actually explained in the comic. And from this point, he wants to know more about uh, criminals around the world and decides to go to Tibet to find out the end. This issue... Um, uh, obviously, uh, there's a lot you can tell about the past of Bruce Wayne. We, we said, we said this the last episode, you know, that we don't know too many specifics. We know vague, we know broad strokes, but we don't know exactly what happened. And this issue, um, one, a lot of this from Batman Begins, but also I think it's the first one in Heartland continuity to show that Bruce actually 
grew up in Gotham and kind of, you know, like, went to regular school because, um, from what I recall in, like, the pre-Flashpoint continuity, he moved and started his training when he was 14 and just went on his own to, you know, to learn formally and he went through an education system but also, you know, trained himself. Whereas here, you see that he's obsessed as he's growing up and by the time he graduates high school, he just can't take anymore and just goes off by himself. Um, and this is new, at least, at least in the comics it is. So my question for the panel is, did you think that that was an effective way to portray Bruce's obsession with his, uh, his parents' death? You know, see him wrestle with it throughout his life in Gotham City? Or would you rather prefer just him, um, I'm already, I don't know, already trying to become Batman as opposed to just learning about his parents' death? I think the thing is, this, I honestly felt as if this was like a prequel to Batman Begins. That's what it felt like. And I'm talking about Batman Begins, the film. The fact that he eventually finds Joe Chill, he has the gun, and then he decides he's not going to do it, and then he decides after that he's going to go off and train. That's that's the first thought that came to my mind when I read that was, wow, we saw almost the exact same thing in Batman Begins, and we're just filling in the blanks between when his parents got murdered and the point where he actually has the gun and is willing to kill Joe Chill. My thing is, I, I'm okay with Bruce struggling with the fact that his parents were murdered and he's convinced that there it was some sort of conspiracy because honestly you got to think he was 10 years old when his parents died he you know he doesn't leave Gotham City to start his training for at least another eight years so the reality is something has to happen in those eight years if he wasn't wrestling with the death of his parents for those eight years or if he wasn't obsessed with it then what really drives him eight years later to go and become Batman I mean, the thing is, it does give him a purpose to go and train and to do this in a way. It's not like dead on. It's not spot on. It doesn't make entirely the most sense in the world. But the thing is, it it fills in the blank of, okay, so at least eight years has passed since your parents' murder. You had to be thinking about this the entire time. Otherwise, why all of a sudden on your 18th birthday or on your 18th birthday do you suddenly yeah. decide... I'm just going to up and up leave, and I'm going to go train to become this uh, vigilante, which I don't know anything about even years after this actual story happens. So, I mean, like, I'm okay with him being obsessed with it. It just, the thing is, um, it felt as if we were getting more than what we needed to be told. And it just goes back to, you know, Scott Snyder said last October that his big thing that he wanted taken out with the New 52 was the fact that there wasn't a specific yep. person who killed Bruce Wayne's parents. It was Joe Chill was the name of like a John Doe type person who killed and, and he used it and Bruce uses the name Joe Chill. So at some point we'll have to interview Scott Snyder again and find out how it went from this is out of it to now we're bringing this back. Anybody else? I definitely agree though that having that Bruce growing up in Gotham seeing that I thought was really cool uh, I uh I, now I know it's never been done in the comics before but it felt really fresh while reading it and I, I really enjoyed seeing that and his obsession while doing so and then also uh having references to quarter vowels and him believing that it should have been something bigger I just thought was really cool to have those references in there. Um, I, I, I wonder if this gives us new insight into the character uh, to think that he, he was obsessing over I mean, we're basically seeing him from age 8 
to, you know, we see his 18th birthday. So basically, like, nonstop, he, uh, <laughs> he was, you know, thinking about this, and this was really driving him. And I think that compared to, like, you know, really early on, you know, in the 30s, and then when they re- redid the story elsewhere, is that we see it happens, and then he comes back. And it's sort of, it's almost like, you know, Jesus. Like, we, we know Jesus was born, um, and then we see Jesus when he's, like, 27. But what happened in between? And so I think in, in this way, it, it was really intriguing because we are able to sort of fill in the gaps. I was, <laughs> I almost started laughing because the school scene, he's doing all this, like, criminology, all this sort of stuff. And I thought to myself, does that seem like, well, actually, that does go to one of the Legends of the Batman stories that I recently read from, like, the 70s, I think, where he had this sort of uh, disagreement with one of his teachers and the thought that, you know, the police can only do so much. And so he decided to take on the mantle. So I guess in in the same respect, he is doing the same thing. And I just wonder, does he really think about, you know, sort of the, the psychology of the people that he's uh, facing? Because I think that was one of the books, um, wasn't it? I have to double check here. I don't know. But he's not even paying attention when he's in school. He's like doing maps and all these connections things. But do you think that's too much that he goes into all of this stuff? It's almost like Babs Gordon is also a part of Bruce Wayne now because he's doing all of this psychology. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it's an intriguing, um, departure, uh, and, and that we're seeing that wow, it's really following him along, and um, but it, it sort of almost makes the character even more unstable than he had been in the past, so that'll be interesting. But I do wonder about all of this kind of, not the training, but like the psychological, you know, training that he's doing. Well, um, we're <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 it's, it's, it's all good in the hood. Um, I think that uh, one thing that I think they kind of touch upon in this is the idea that because Thomas Wayne uh, was such a, a a man about town in Gotham City, there's this idea of cons- of, of a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, for those who you don't know, and I know you know for those who love the history, <laughs> that uh, in the gold not the golden age but the silver age, uh, there actually was a conspiracy that that killed Thomas and Martha Wayne. Uh, uh, Thomas Wayne had gotten this this gangster named Lou Moxon mm-hmm. arrested. Uh, uh, so he said, I'll get you, I'll get you the last thing I ever do, Wayne. And, uh, he hired Joe Chill, uh, to pose as a mugger to kill him, which is what happened. Uh, and I think that, like, it's been kind of left in the Silver Age, but since then, uh, I like the idea that, I don't think it's very explicit here, but it's uh, almost like an echo that Bruce just imagines that, that something like that had to have happened because it makes sense that his father would be taken down that way. Um, we even see echoes of that in Batman Earth 2, uh, or no, I'm sorry, Batman Earth 1, the, uh, Jeff Johns. Uh, Gary Frank story so and I think that leads into the fact that Joe Chill is named here so what do you guys think about the fact that like it was just a random mugging as opposed to like I, I think they're trying to have it both ways where you know there could have been conspiracy but I mean, Joe Chill is still named would you guys have rather that the the death of his parents be more simple and you know just be a, a random killer or do you like the fact that we have a Joe, named Joe Chill even though Scott Snyder doesn't uh, is this in terms of, like, you know, the original story where his parents were just killed by a mugger, how does this kind of hold up in terms of, you know, the fact that it was uh, a drunk guy looking for pearls? I, my thing is, I think the problem is that they've simplified it to the point where there's, not, there's no questions about it. And the thing is, 
you know, it doesn't really leave any op- opportunities. I mean, we, we there was a couple years back where Morrison brought Joe Chill back in, back you know back and was using him in one of the stories and uh, Bruce was hunting down Joe Chill who you know had a completely different role than just you know a mugger inside the street and the the thing is at this point okay so it was basically a drunk who had a gun and was startled by his mother screaming so he shot them and he never even got anything that he wanted in the first place the thing is it just but to me, it just simplifies it way too much where there's nothing to it anymore. It's just, okay, so there's a guy, he was a drunk, he wanted to steal some stuff, and he got scared, so he shot him. That's it. That's that's all there is to it. Like, if, there, if they left it in a way where it could have been a conspiracy or something like that, that, you know, maybe it's like this ultimate mystery that uh, Bruce has to solve throughout his entire career, that would be interesting too, because you could do something with that later, but by making it so definitive, this is what it is, to me it just is like, eh, okay, whatever. I get what you're saying. Um, I like the fact that it's just a mugger, because I said before how I don't like the fact that the Waynes have always been somehow this like amazing family who've just done so much for the city and I've been there in every single part of its history um, I, so I don't like them being involved in everything so I like the fact that it was just a mugger and I think it makes more sense and it kind of it works for Batman you know still fighting like street level crime and stuff instead of always going out for these huge like insane monarchal people and like why he sticks to what's going on outside opposed to, you know, corporate crime and stuff. He doesn't deal with that as much. Um, so I think it works for that. But then at the same time, having him revealed then takes away some of the passion, I guess. Which is always the fear, I think, when Bruce confronts Joe Chill is that he's going to then go, oh, well, I've done it. That's That's me complete now. So... You know, like uh, Dustin was saying, I, I like it to an extent, but in other ways, it's kind of, it doesn't really work all that well. Um, You know, I hate to do this to you, Dustin, but, you know, when I was on uh, another podcast that was about uh, Spider-Man, well, I became sort of sad and disillusioned, and I really wanted simpler times. I just yearned for those simpler times. And I think that in this case, I think we're okay with the fact that, you know, there isn't some crazy plot that it's all interwound. And, yeah, there are some, you know, things, but, hey, it's it's a mugger. I think that it's okay. I mean, even back then when we did have... Um, uh, the connection there to what what Thomas did, I, I think it it was still simple, and we didn't have a connection to the talons and everything like that. And I think it gets to the root of who Batman is, and it's the fact that he's there because I mean Gotham is a terrible place, and it wasn't really Joe Chill, you know, that killed. Martha and uh, Thomas Wayne, it was Gotham City, because Gotham City is, I mean, it creates this terrible condition, this terrible human condition, and it drags people down, it makes them desperate, because the city is desperate, and it really, it's like venom, it it, it, it destroys them, so I think that in this case, hey man, a mugger, a mugger killed them, and that's just what happened, and it sort of drove Bruce Wayne mad. Because he seems like he's mad in this one. Mad isn't crazy. I do wonder, 
riddle me this. I do. <laughs> sorry. I do wonder if um, if Martha was shot or if she died of a broken heart because I have read both of those sorts of uh, stories. So that would be interesting because you sort of you don't see it. You just see the pearls of fallen. Okay. Um, I, for my thoughts, I think that like um, I am of the opinion that like I think think it's a lot more powerful to have Batman be a victim of a random act of crime. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't like the name Joe Chill. I grew up, I, I, I did grow up in the era where Denny O'Neill, um, erased Joe Chill from the minds of readers. So, like, you know, having his name bandied about, and I know it's because of the movie, but having his name ba- bandied about all the time now, uh, is not really something that I, I mean, I, I'm a little more used to it, but I'd rather just be a random guy than, you know, I think the name Joe Chill in and of itself is ridiculous. That just sounds like it, it was coming from, like, a Silver Age comic, but, like, but that being said... I do like the fact that, like, at least Bruce assumed it was a conspiracy, and, like, you know, you know I, I just wanted the pearls, I just wanted booze. So, like, it's still a random act of violence. Um, I am of the opinion, excuse me, I am of the opinion that, like, if Bruce Wayne never knew why, I don't think that, like, he should become Batman to necessarily try to find the killer, you know, one day. Like, you know, every person he fights is him trying to find the killer. I never like that explanation, but I just think that, like, you know, he gets to a point where it doesn't matter if he ever finds it. He just doesn't want it to happen to people again. That That's a way to uh, kind of do it. But, but I'm, I'm getting into my own personal philosophy on it. I think the way they did it was decent. Uh, and I think it was basically like it was uh, post-Infinite Crisis. Cause I know they modified it to back to being Joe Chill, who was actually arrested in Infinite, after post-Infinite Crisis. But now it's like, you know, it doesn't even matter. So I will say, though, that I think that, like, this issue didn't sufficiently – established to me why Bruce Wayne felt like he needed to fight crime, but whatever. Um, so that's all I, I could uh, sum up, because this is very basic, you know, it's just basically, you know, Batman dealing with his parents' death, which he does in every single issue comic I've ever. So, um, yeah, that's all our thoughts on Alright, so Batman the Dark Knight number zero, I'm going to give a total of three out of five batterings. I concur. Three out of five I will, batterings. I will also give it three out of five batterings. Four out of five batterings. Alright, so that is gonna oh, give. Oh no! Oh wait, I'm sorry, it's wrong. Three point five out of five batterings. All right, so that is gonna give Batman: The Dark Knight number zero a total of three out of five batterings. Let's move into our most possibly the most controversial issue we've dealt with in a while. Teen Titans number zero. Tim, you'll be running Gamma. Me? Dick, I've never led a squad before. Making this a good opportunity to get your feet wet as a field leader. Because it's Gamma and you're not expecting trouble? Or because we're stretched thin and you have no choice? Just don't die, okay? Yeah, if anyone was wondering, um, if I didn't make myself clear last year, why I left the show and why I left the Bat Books, it's because you wouldn't want to hear me on the podcast every episode just spouting explicitives at at these books. Explicitives? Expletives, excuse me. <laughs> I, I, I have the, I have the, I have the language teacher here. I gotta shape up. Um, <laughs> Ship out. Right. Well, but speaking of teachers, this this story does open at school. Tim Drake is performing in some sort of a gymnastics thing, and there's talk of scholarships, something like that. Bruce Wayne is there disguised with Alfred. They're talking about if he'd make <laughs> a good Robin or not. 
Um, and, Al- <laughs> and Alfred's kind of encouraging this, and we learn via exposition that apparently Tim has been trying to find out Batman's secret identity just for the heck of it for the last few months, and he's actually come really close. So what Batman's done is he's created a few red herrings so that he can tell Tim to stop this once and for all. Back at home after the competition, Tim's dad says, Tim, you are too good for this family, and we're not worthy of you. And then he says, no, you're not, Dad. Then he goes upstairs to his room going to sleep, realizing that his dad is absolutely right. So he goes out to meet Batman at uh, what he thinks is Batman's secret headquarters, and Batman pretty much says, you found everything that I want you to found, and the secret identity that you think is me is just a made-up person. You need to stop this stuff. He says, please, can I be Robin? Batman says no. So Batman thinks that this little pep talk has encouraged him, and he's going to move on with his life. But instead, Tim has become a cyber Robin Hood, and he's uh, stolen from criminals and given it to the poor. And he apparently stole a million dollars from the Penguin's men, and everyone knows that the Penguin has ninjas. I mean, come on. That's always been the Penguin's character. He has killer ninja assassins. So Batman realizing that Tim Drake has, or or Tim not Drake, uh, but we'll just call him Tim now, has rattled the wrong tree. He goes to save Tim and his family, who are about to be attacked by Penguin's killer ninjas, who for some reason have guns. Because, like, there's a sniper, like, shooting a milk ball that Tim has. I thought that ninjas don't use guns, but anyway... We get this big reveal on the next page when he's looking for his parents, where you think that, okay, he's going to open the door, he's going to see the corpses. But thankfully, his parents are alive. So we go to the police station or wherever they're meeting where Tim's like, dang, I really messed up. And Batman's like, yeah, so your parents are going to have to go away for a while. Um, The witness protection program said so, but they want me to take care of you. So he goes to Bruce Wayne, to the Batcave. He reveals to him that he's really Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne is not notices that Tim is not surprised. He finally says that he can become Robin, like he's been begging the duality issue. He says, nah, I'd rather be Red Robin instead. And uh, tucked in there at the end is a little narration box that says that now he is known as Tim Drake. And we see the picture of... it's It echoes the picture of Batman and Robin, or Red Robin, from the first issue of Teen Titans, bringing our story somewhat full circle. Am I allowed to start? No, no, that's the whole point. The whole point is you come up with the you come up with three topics for okay. us to discuss. You start the, each topic. Okay. Lead us into the. I want to start Josh. with this whole witness protection program thing. All right. The Penguins' men are after his whole family. They're not just gonna not go after Tim because his parents are gone. They're gonna go after him too. So. And, and from what we can read in between the lines, his name was changed because of the Witness Protection Program. So, let's talk about how the Witness Protection Program is not doing its job at all. Tim <laughs> has his same first name. He's still living in the city where he was originally based in. By the way, we're putting him with Bruce Wayne, one of the most prolific men in the city. Therefore, Tim will always be front and center. And we have established in Batman issue one that Tim is like, you know, at these Batman Bruce Wayne cocktail parties. And uh, I haven't been reading these other issues, but Don's like telling me these cases where like, you know, these Wayne fangirls are like, oh, make sure you get a picture of Tim Drake. So there's that. His hair color is not changed. His, his face isn't altered in any way, shape, or form. He looks the same. He has the same first name. He's at rich cocktail parties, plastered all over newspapers. How is the Witness Protection Program doing their job? Thoughts, <laughs> thoughts gentlemen and lady. My, my thought is this on the Witness Protection thing. I, I think the problem is that 
I, why well, the first thing that we have to do is we have to question of why exactly, how exactly Penguin figured out it was Tim's family house. Okay, so maybe he traced the IP address back to that house, and that's how he did it. But you would think, you you would think that because Tim is as smart as he is, he would have figured out some way to make that so that didn't happen. They go exactly. the entire the entire issue. They go on and on about how he's incredibly smart. He's able to do all these things. He can hack into these bank accounts. But yet somehow he leaves a trace that somebody who works for the Penguin could be able to figure out exactly where it came from. That's that's unbelievable in the first place. The second place is, does Penguin actually know that it's Tim or the boy who lives at the house who did it? Or is Penguin just saying, let's go to this house and shoot it up because this is where we got the ping from this, this account being liquidated from? Because if that's the case, then, okay, so he might not even know who exactly is in the house. And he, if, he did a, if he did a search online or something or if they did some research, and they find out it's a guy who works for a living and a mom and then their son, they might be able to figure out, okay, the son's really smart and they'll figure out it's the son. So if that's the case and he figures out, okay, well, it's probably this kid who's been, you know, is extremely smart and extremely athletic and this, that, and the other. If he figures that out, then Batman's probably doing the worst thing possible by bringing him into the fold and bringing him towards, you know, within the Wayne family and living at Wayne Manor and stuff like that because Penguin would already know who the boy is. The picture was already, his picture was already plastered all over newspapers before he had anything to do with Bruce Wayne because he was a very skilled athlete. He was a very smart person. So they even showed when he was doing his gymnastics they even showed there was somebody who said, "Hey, look, there's an article with Tim in it. Did you see? Did you show him?" So clearly, he's not somebody who people wouldn't know about. So, which leads me to believe, it leads me to the 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 assumption of why did Penguin send somebody to this house, and why is it believable that the witness protection is going to work in the first place? If the only reason Penguin would go to the house was for the boy, but the boy's the only one who doesn't go into witness protection. So, like that's that's my thing. I mean, it's. It, Okay, it's, it, to me, witness protection, yes, they're not doing their job if they're supposed to be protecting Tim. But my the way I initially read it was that his parents were going in witness protection so that it was believable that the family died. But at the same point, it doesn't make any sense if Penguin knew that the reason he was going to that house to kill those people at the house was because of Tim being the person to kill. How would you send people assassins to a, a house... A house which which inherently has an address and not know who lives in the oh, address. Oh, I, I know. It's just I'm just saying it's it's one of those things where there's 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 just a little too many holes with the thought process behind the person going. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think Josh and Dustin said as much about the witness protection things. So I, I don't have much to add. Well, ch- changing his last name is an implication that you're trying to hide him because otherwise, why would you change his last name? So it, if you're gonna hide him, you need to change more than his last name, which I she guess. Call him Tim Wayne. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Remember or, that. Or don't change, or or change his first name too. Dye his hair, maybe. But we're living in a world a where city. people don't realize that Superman and Clark can't are the same people, and he only has a dopey haircut and glasses we're living in the same world that people don't they don't realize they don't put two and two together that if bab shows up in spain and batgirl shows up in spain they're probably two so i think we can accept this 
Okay. We're living in a world where Joker can see Batman out of costume standing over a grave and not realize it's Batman. <laughs> well, okay, let's say that his name is Tim John Blake or something, you know? Like, Tim John Blake and Tim Drake, both athletes, both living in Gotham, both photos. <laughs> or do we live in a world where people aren't going to make that connection? At least Clark Kent wears the glasses. <laughs> I, I think it's all about the glasses. They, they think... can't give Tim John Blake any glasses. Maybe, I mean, maybe that, uh, yeah, I guess, Joe, you go. Well, I, I think Dustin brought up an interesting point, because, like, I'm willing to let a lot slide when it comes to this sort of thing, you know, suspension of disbelief, and, like, Stella brought up, it's the world where, you know, a guy can just, you know, cover half his face and no one knows who he is. But it all comes down to whether he adopted Dick Grayson and Jason Todd, because if people realise that Jason Todd stopped living with uh, Bruce Wayne for whatever reason and then Robin disappeared and then a few months later or a year later another boy goes to live with Bruce Wayne and then another Robin shows up that's when I start to think okay people will probably notice that sort of thing especially as when Dustin said his face is already over the news and they know how athletic he is and how much prowess he shows so that's why in the original comics, this was addressed. Like, like B- Jason died. Robin disappeared for a while. Gordon's like, where's Robin? Batman didn't say anything. Tim didn't live with Bruce automatically, and he didn't appear as Robin automatically. And when he did, people like the Joker freaked out because, you know, like, like Robin's in a new costume. You know, Tim Drake has, has an association with Bruce Wayne. This was brought up in the comics. Where in here, in the, in the single issue... You can't bring it up for you know page count reasons, but like it's too much to it's too much uh, to suspend at least at least for a status quo. Well, I'm just saying I'm gonna be the one positive person on this show. And then um, you'll have to apologize to me. I ain't gonna apologize to no one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so hey, first of all, my answer is Tim's not in Witsack, so you can't be you can't be you know railing on. And then for not doing their job if he's not in it, they're doing then their job. Then why they change his last name? That you know he did it. I don't. I don't know. But he's not with Witsack. If he were with Witsack, he wouldn't be with Batman. They would have taken him somewhere else. So his parents are with Witsack. We'll accept that they're not dealing with Tim. Tim changed his name for some asinine reason, but it's not Witsack's problem. There's my answer for that, and I'm sticking to it. Number two. Okay, but but when a family goes into a program, you don't take the parents and not the kid, but then change the kid's last name. But this was all in their plan anyways. The father had that whole dialogue that, Tim, you need to be on your own. So they were leaving him. They were being better parents by leaving him because they wanted him to succeed on their own. They saw bigger things for him. This was his chance. So maybe he took the chance, said, I want to have a Tim Drake number zero. So he honored I'm his father my by changing his last name. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, this isn't this is about his destiny. This is about like saving his life. Two different things, Okay, I'm going to continue on my point. So that was Witsec. Number two, Dustin brought up this issue of... Um, you know, this kid, he's a genius because he, he finds that his principal's doing some bad things. And how does he get traced? And I say that he made a mistake on purpose, and it's sort of implied, I feel, in this story. Now you're probably, like, scrunching your eyes say, say, what, girlfriend? But he made a mistake on purpose because... <laughs> Sorry. I'm kind of, like, riled up now. 
he made a mistake on purpose because he wanted Bat. I mean, Batman turned him down already. So I think he was purposely getting a trap sort of set. He, but it got out of control. He didn't know what was going on. But it was a way to get Batman to notice him again, kind of prove his point. But it got out of hand. And that is my thought on that. Uh, so, I mean, your thought on that is like your, your inference of that is that when Penguin found out, Tim, like, subconsciously did it on purpose. Yeah, like, he may not have cleaned up his tracks as much as we would have thought. Because, yeah, it doesn't make sense if he is a genius. But I think because he was turned down so uh, bluntly by Batman in the first place, this was, like, a chance, like, okay, if something happens here, then maybe I can get Batman's notice. Um, and maybe the IP, like, that address was for Batman to notice, and then it just kind of got out of hand. But I think that he did something. And it just got out of hand. I guess that makes sense because if you did it so neatly that no one would notice, then Batman, yeah, like you said, Batman wouldn't notice it, at least not straight away. I actually had that thought when I was like reading the book. Like, this kid did this on purpose. He has everything he wants now. Including his parents. Yeah, including. <laughs> well, okay, actually, that's the next discussion point is Tim's parents, and, you know, just under the umbrella of the discussion of Tim's parents is his relationship with them, the fact that um, that they survived as opposed to dying. And sorry enough, I prefer the fact that his parents lived. And I, I, that's one of the few things of the issue that I liked is the page where he's looking for them. And you expect that he's going to find the dead bodies and they're alive. Subvert our expectations there. And one of the few things that I agree with Lebdell in the interview is when they killed off Tim's family, it took away some of what made him special. Although him being Robin and him being named Tim Drake also made him special, but I digress. The thing that I did not like about his parents here is this is pretty much like a fan fiction, like fantasy, that like an eight-year-old would have. Like his parents said, oh, you're not good enough for, for this for, to be with our lowly family. And he goes to bed thinking, yep, my dad is absolutely right. You know, oh, no, not I'm not good enough. Excuse me. We're not good enough to be your parents. And he's like, yes, they're not good enough to be my parents. And then the scene in the witness protection program or the interrogation or whatever where Batman says, your parents want you to come live with me. Like, what kid's dream isn't to say, like, your parents are going away, but the best part is you don't have to go with them, which is a contrived circumstance in and of itself. But wait, there's more. Your parents want you to live with me, Batman, just what you've always wanted. Isn't that great? The parents that know that you're too awesome to be with them want to send you to live with me, a superhero. This was written by an adult man, folks. <laughs> and, and, and it begs the question, too. If Tim Drake is front and center at these Wayne parties and stuff, and his parents said, go live with Batman, do they know that Bruce Wayne's Batman? Do the witness protection people know that Bruce Wayne's Batman? That's part of the problem when it comes to doing these stories without thinking of the implications of the scenes that you're writing. These scenes aren't just characters talking. The stuff that they say has implications. Think about the implications. Yeah, this is a problem because, like... You're assuming you're you're having things fall into place neatly so Tim can have an origin. We we need we need Tim to be Robin, and you know like the things that 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 make up Tim's makeup in in this thing are you know his parents, his athleticism, his intelligence, but like being I mean if nothing else he and his parents love each other. They're not a stranger or whatever. I mean they might want the best for Tim to the point where they think that he should leave them apparently. But there's no question that they all all three love each other. So I would imagine that like you know. If anything, this would be an interesting story point that, like, you know, okay, Tim has what he wants. He's Robin. He's with Batman. He, uh, but, like, you know, at, at the cost of his parents, even though they're still alive, I think that would be an interesting uh, – that would be a way to have Tim be the same but yet be different. 
But no, it's it's just like you know, wow, I'm 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 gonna be Robin. But no, I'm gonna be Red Robin because that's how, that's how I roll. I I think that that was, that in particular was a small uh, missed story opportunity. My thing is this: the the biggest problem is there's they they've basically set it up when when they show Batman in the same room and he says to Tim, "Well, you're gonna come live with me." There, it's very clear that he, Batman is at Witsec. It's very clear that his parents have said, "Okay, well, you're gonna go live with Batman." The problem with that is, as soon as Tim is seen with anybody who's not Batman, there everyone who's involved in the situation is going to know exactly who Batman is. So Witsec will then know who Batman is. Tim's parents will know then know who Batman is, and like. That like what 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 was the point of uh, Batman needing to be in that room? Why didn't they figure out some? I mean, it's all it's all screwed up to begin with. But if they just made Bruce Wayne there instead of Batman, or you know, have him go to, you know, I, I don't even know because this wouldn't make sense in the in in the concept of what they're doing. But like a boys' home or a or some sort of orphanage or something like that and have Batman pluck him out of that, it wouldn't have worked because, well, why would his parents have left him so that he could sit in some orphanage or boys' home? So, I mean, there's there's so many problems with the idea behind Batman being in that room when that all happens where now there's a number of people who know who Batman is. Here's another thing, though. Okay, the whole point is to get him as far away from the Penguin as possible, yet you're sticking him... In a, in a domino mask, and like ideally, he's going to run to the penguin sooner or later as Robin. Is that going to like? Do they have any concern about that? Like, oh, he will never guess who you are. I mean, I mean the idea because I mean, penguin has to know that Batman intervened to save the Drake, uh, to save the non Drakes. The John so, Blake. Next time he sees the the the, the, the 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 Blake family, so next time he sees this kid, he was going to kill. He uh, he's with he's with Batman in a mask. Like it's obvious. Again, it's like the Joker thing. It's obvious who Robin is. I can I can let go of the domino mask thing because that's like we we've had to accept that no one recognizes him behind the domino mask for years. But witness protection program or you know witness endangerment program and you know separating families program for the lulls, you know like child Except wish for the fulfillment program. You need to accept. You need to no, accept. No ch- child wish fulfillment on. program. We're taking your parents away, but you get to live with Batman. It's okay because you know you're too awesome for know. your parents. Anyways. I don't think people know that Batman was in that room because I mean, how many times has you know the commish kind of? His parents got knew. No, how? Yes, because he, he's a. Read the page. He's like no, it's, your it's, it's, parents. Your parents asked me to keep an eye on you. But how? How? Is it in that guy's, or is it as Bruce Wayne, and he's just popping up there? Well, your parents asked me to keep an eye on you. Oh, by the way, you're living with Bruce Wayne. Hmm. <laughs> this person who we have no relationship with whatsoever. But an eye on you is something very different. Stella. What? You're fighting a losing battle, and you know oh, it. Ask me to keep an eye on you when they are placed. That, yeah, but an eye on you isn't necessarily. He didn't come out and say that. Okay, he's Stella, live with Stella, me. if Stella, if I what? left you a kid, if I left you a kid to babysit for the weekend, and I say keep an eye on him, and then like for some reason I turn on CNN, and this kid's going all around the world with Kimberly Rockmore, someone who <laughs> you know, despite despite Facebook and everything else, I, I've never had any contact with before. I would therefore make the connection 
I left this kid with Stella. Now he's with Kimberly Rockmore. Now, if I was a genius, I would say Stella's Kimberly Rockmore. If I had the slightest bit of brains, the least I would say is there must be a connection between Stella and Kimberly Rockmore. But I still don't think that you can, this is like that date and dating issue that you guys had on that other uh, that other podcast. You know, an ion isn't necessarily he's in my possession. It could just mean like he's living somewhere and I'm going to check in on him. Stella. <laughs> you know, you go your own way. Give it up, Stella. Maybe we should move. You can go your Maybe we should move on to, to another point. What, I mean, moving on. Yeah. Yeah, okay, move, moving on from the Drakes. Um, no, hold on, oh, hold on. Well, Joe's got something to say about Oh, okay. Um, oh, okay. I thought Joe was trying to wrap it up. Sorry. I know, Sorry, I just wanted to go mention about what you said about um, the parents still being alive. I think what Scott Lobdell was saying about how you know, that kind of made Tim Drake special, the fact that his parents were still alive and he respected them and stuff. I think what was interesting about that is how, you know, he had to get home before his dad realised he was out. He had to wait till his dad had gone to bed to sneak out as Robin. And then just you've still taken that away. They're not dead, but they're, they're not in the picture. So I think that whole dynamic's taken away. So I, I still think that what he's yeah, done is effectively the same thing. Yeah, and and the biggest thing is... So his parents aren't dead, so he still keeps an eye on them, which Lobdell made a point to say that in that interview, too. And to me, it just is like, okay, so his parents are still alive, he's worried about them, and he's keeping track of them. So how is he maintaining what he needs to maintain as a superhero if all he's thinking about is his parents? Like the fact that Lobdell said, oh, yeah, well, he was sitting in that limo on the way to a mission or whatever and looking at his laptop and he was watching a satellite feed of his parents. So while he's out on a mission, while he's out on a mission, he he's, he's paying attention to what his parents are doing. I mean, like to me, it's just, okay. So he's, he said himself in this issue. Um, yes, I'm too good for my parents and my, my parents are not good <laughs> enough to, for me to be around. And he was okay with the fact of they were going to have to go. Yeah, he was disappointed and kind of upset that he caused the whole situation. But ultimately, it comes out to be that's what he wanted in the first place. So he gets what he wants, but now he's still going to keep track of what his parents are doing. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But then the the biggest thing that I am that I have a problem with with this whole parents thing is, like Joe said, the whole point was, oh, his parents are alive and not dead and that's why he's it makes him that it gives him that edge that nobody else had because all the other robins had this vengeance uh towards or vengeance or revenge or something towards being robin yeah the The pain pain of of loss so tim drake on the other hand doesn't have that he's different but the fact is the reason why it was so different is because what joe said it's it's not because you know, he doesn't have to go avenge his parents' death. It had to do with the fact that he was a kid who had to deal with the fact that his parents didn't know he was a, he was a sidekick or a superhero, and he had to maintain his secret identity to his parents. The same way in, in that, that made uh, Batgirl Volume 3 so interesting with the fact that Stephanie had to hide it from her mom. That's what made it interesting, was the fact that here are a, here's a teenage superhero who is what, you know, every kid who's reading comic books, you know, who's 8 to 13 years old is thinking about, like, oh, man, it'd be awesome to be a superhero. 
that's what they they were thinking was this is what I would have to do. I'd have to hide this from my parents because my parents would never be able to know because it put their lives at risk. Yes, exactly. So that's what was so great about Tim Drake and his parents being in Witsec does not make that interesting at all. When this endangerment program. All right, if there's nothing else, I can do the third discussion point. Yes, I do at least have to say that I, I do agree in that point, and, you know, I think Lobdell wanted to do something different to have them still alive, but it, it doesn't really matter if they're having zero interaction with it, and I think one of the best parts, and I don't, don't know, you know, this is me, honestly, everything that I'm saying here is the fact that I'm sort of a new reader for Tim Drake. I know of him. I've read Young Justice throughout, uh, not the, you know, the TV show, but everything, but not really, you know, his origin or anything like this, so well, I'm really sort of like a brand spanking new reader, so this sort of like, it works for me. But I did read Identity Crisis, and I really loved the fact that he had such a close relationship with his father. And I do agree 100%, 200%, that that was certainly missing, just this close relationship, so that they're gone. Even though if they are alive, there's no relationship there, which is sad. Okay, the third discussion point. Um, the changes between... Tim Drake's origin from Lonely Place of Dying and, and the books that followed to this. And among the many changes, one being the his new name, but we'll get to that. My thing with this is um, it's the same issues that I had with Jason Todd, with the Jason Todd issue, is that they take the story beats from the original books, but without any of the context and any of the emotional impact. In Lonely Place of Dying, we saw Tim Drake following Batman around, and we saw him being worried about Batman. We saw why he thought Batman needed a Robin. We saw Bruce pushing himself to the edge. We saw Alfred bandaging up Bruce and realizing that Bruce was slowly killing himself. We saw all these characters feel this way before, so that way when Tim Drake later said, you need a Robin and here's why, we as the readers were right along with them. Here, it's like said offhandedly in dialogue, hey, I think you need a Robin. I mean, you've kind of been, you know, a little uh, crazy lately. And Tim's basically campaigning for himself, which he didn't do at first in Lonely Place of Dying. He was worried about Batman, and he had an agenda to get – he was basically a Bruce and Dick shipper. He was trying to get Dick to be Robin again. Here, it's like he looked – Lobdell looked at the Wikipedia entry for Tim Drake or an old Who's Who entry and said, okay, so he's worried about Batman. He follows him around, figures out his identity. He takes, like, the key points of that, and again, it's watered down. It's done without any of the emotional context. It's this kid campaigning to be Robin for almost no reason. I mean, we are told through the story that he's worried about him since Jason died, but we don't get to see why he's worried about him. I mean – Bruce doesn't appear to be on edge. Bruce doesn't appear to be like, you know, like losing it like because of Jason's death. We just have characters saying this. So they're telling us and not showing us because they're trying to hit those story beats. And okay, and the other change too is now he was never Tim Drake, which by the way, thank you DC editorial for uh, Scott Lobdell, you are a much more patient <laughs> man than I. Oh, they changed this without telling me. Any other writer would have been angry. Well, yeah, you should have been angry. You're handling this character and his legacy, and they just changed something major about the character without telling you. Does this affect future issues of Teen Titans that you're writing? Well, I don't know. They didn't ask you. They changed it without your permission. So yeah, I'm glad that you're not mad at DC. It just proves that you're a more patient man than I. So weeks ago, we were all angry because this whole Tim Drake thing has been a 
a saga. First, he was never Robin. Then they changed the trade paperback. Now he was also never Tim Drake. So the two, like, most iconic name things about Tim Drake, the fact that he was Tim Drake and the fact that he was Robin, huh, actually, he was never really Tim Drake, and he was never really Robin. He's barely even the character who he was at that point. If someone would have told me over a year ago, when this new 52 was coming out, that Tim Drake's history would be changed so that he was never Robin and his name wasn't actually Tim Drake, I would have punched them in the face, and then I would have laughed so what did you guys all think about the changing origin okay you, uh i'm gonna say this real quick this is my major beat stella said that she's not as familiar with tim because she didn't read like you know like uh, besides joan justice like back issues with tim drake and that's i'm not saying like that's her fault but the point of the zero issues is to provide context for why the characters are the way they are and ideally to get readers emotionally attached to these characters you know like because up till now, especially with the Bat books, which are by this point the most retconned comics in New Fifty Two history, we're supposed to we're supposed to be interested in these characters on their own in these new origins, and not just because of what we vaguely remember or have heard about pre Flashpoint. Tim Drake is a popular Robin because he was so different from Dick and Jason. His parents were alive. He was smart. He was a regular kid. He was ambitious. He wasn't he wasn't like Dick Grayson. He wasn't like T Jason Todd. We know that because he was famous for being that. So here, like Josh said, they, they go through the story beats. But can I, w I really want to know from Stella and Joe, who've not read Lonely Place of Dying, uh, honestly, did you read this and honestly care about the character of Tim Drake? Did you, I want, did you yearn for him to be Robin? Did you feel sorry for him? Did you like him? What was your emotional reaction? Because my feeling is that I can't see readers getting that. And because... Because this zero, this zero month was DC's opportunity to really hammer home what makes these characters great in these zero issues, I feel that they just, they just, they just half-assed it. I really, really do. I think these should stand on their own, and they don't. They're going through like by the numbers storytelling, again with the freaking penguin, and and, and you know you're again like like he's Tim Drake is not the same character. It's not just because his origin is different, his personality is different, his his motivations essentially different because. He's not a kid. He's not. He's not. A, he's not. To me, he's not a regular kid who likes Batman, Robin. He's a self-concerned, like ambitious, like know-it-all who basically, uh, who basically bullies Batman into being Robin. You know, for lack of a better phrase. I don't find that. I don't find that very admirable. So, like, he's not Tim Drake. He's not Robin, and his personality traits aren't the same. So, why should we be attached to this character who are only given this issue to like when he's basically pushing himself onto Batman? So, I want to know from Joe and Stella. What did they come from away from and who Tim Drake is in this issue? Um, I think the main thing is like I, I haven't read Lonely Place of Dying but I, I know the story I know what happened so I think what I was able to do is associate what was happening in this with that so because I haven't read that I, I wasn't comparing it so I didn't think oh this isn't done nearly as well but at the same time, I wasn't reading it fresh, so it wasn't like, really, this is how he becomes Robin, this is awful. I was able to like put in where I thought the emotion was and where it should be, so it didn't bother me as much. But then hearing your take on it and how you read it, it definitely makes sense, and I think that comes through. I, I wouldn't, I don't think I'd put it as harshly as you, I don't think he's like... Just, uh, I don't think it's all about him. I think there are elements of it where he is genuinely concerned about Batman. But like we've been saying for a lot of these, there's just too much put in. 
and there's way too much story to fit into one single issue and that's where you lose some of the emotional attachment to it um yeah so i guess lonely place of dying as as josh um was pointing out it was all about batman needing a robin and i think for me this story was more about um Tim really needed Batman here. And I, I just think that there was, like, something in him that was, like, missing something. And, you know, all of these successes, his brain, power, everything, wasn't really giving him anything. And so he was sort of looking for something to fill that empty void. And Batman happened, happened to be it. And so it's an unconventional tale. Um, and so I can, I guess, appreciate sort of this fresh look. And I did find it entertaining. Was it... Um, as emotional as Batwoman? No, definitely not. Is it the Tim Drake that I have read before? No, definitely not. Uh, but I guess um, in this respect, I'm just going to have to um, actually accept that this is the new 52 and that this is a different Tim and that Scott Lobdell is writing it. Yeah, I think the main thing I think that comes out of this is that the way Tim Drake is written is Batman's a challenge to him and the whole thing the whole reason he's doing what he's doing is to you know find out who Batman is and that, then he'll feel some worth in himself because he's always looking to better himself and I think that the reason he wants to be Robin is not to help Batman like it used to be it's more that you know he wants to prove himself and then Batman kind of I think lets him be Robin because he feels like he deserves it because of how intelligent he is and his detective skills and I think that's where you kind of see him being more Robin is through Batman's narration of him but I think the only way he deserves to be Robin is through like just how skilled he is but you know with the emotional side it's just not that good I think Joe hit the nail on the head that um, it's more like Tim Drake is doing this whole trying to find out who Batman thing is as a hobby as opposed to, you know, wanting to help. It's it's a hobby for him. Alright, so that's what we're going to do. Okay. <clears throat> Alright, so Teen Titans number zero, I'm going to give a total of three out of five batterings. What? <laughs> I'm going to give it a... I'm going to give it a one out of five batterings. Um, there's, just, there's just too many things wrong with it to make it fall apart. I will give it a three out of five batterings because as blasphemous as it is, I still enjoy the story and thought it was well written. And I agree with Joe and I'll give it four out of five batterings. Four oh Stella. Are we no longer friends? Apology on my desk tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna hold um, to everything I said here. Uh, okay. I don't think single battering. The only way that this thing would get a battering for me is if I could throw it at the issue. It's, um, there's <laughs> way too many plot holes, and not just like small plot, you know, how come the or handle chance, you know, handle the panel. Big plot, logistical plot holes about witness protection program, last names, you know, who knows who Batman is. Stop that look. If you look at these stories beyond the scenes that they're in and ask them legitimate questions, they just fall apart, so it loses points for that. It loses batterings for the fact that 
it basically puts on the legacy of Tim Drake in a big way. It takes away his Robin identity. It takes away his original name. And it takes away his original motivation. No batterings. All right, so that is going to give Teen Titans number zero a total of three out of five batterings. All right, Bat fans, as you may know, this episode is already running pretty long, so what we've actually done is we're actually going to be breaking this into two parts. So right now you've listened to the first part of episode 101, and next Friday you'll actually be able to listen to the next part of 101. So it'll actually be episode 101.5, which will have our second set of books as well as Bat Books for Beginners. So make sure you check out the Batman Universe Comic Podcast a week from now to actually hear the second part of episode 101. Um, Overall, the episode was a very, very long episode, and hopefully you've been enjoying it. So we'll see you guys next week. Okay, what I was trying to say was I was trying to send you that link right there, and Skype just completely crashed. Okay. That's how powerful the die cut covers are. They'll crash Batman's computer. I think 497 was Nightfall. Yes. Yeah, I was thinking that too. It, it was probably the issue where uh, Bane broke Batman's back, because the next like special issue was the Asriel one, which was 500. Right. Yeah, it is. Oh, I, oh yeah, I've seen this. I've seen this in comics. I've never actually seen it like in real life, like in my hand. I have one of them. But the Batgirl 13 is modern day? The die cut? Yes, it'll be... Volume 4? Yes, the one that comes out next month. Okay. The picture's actually already up on comic book resources of the of the die cut covers. We just can't talk about them. You thought it could never happen. The breaking of the Batman. That's Bane. <laughs> you guys were all there for that one. This is on all of you. You just stood there and watched <laughs> That was great. I like that. that yes. It should have gotten old, but it never did. But his reaction to the Justice League in the third one made it made it work. Like he's like, "Why did this have to happen? You just stood there and watched it happen to me." I still think my favorite was uh, Superman flying around kissing his enemies. Oh, <laughs> how did you, how did you end up seeing it, Joe? What did you do? I uh, streamed it somewhere from a uh, website. It fell. That, that one fell. That one's actually my biggest complaint because it fell apart at the end. Because why are they all in love with him? Because isn't the whole point of the amnesia kiss that you don't remember the kiss? And didn't they establish that at the beginning of the sketch? That's Bertone. Okay, so uh, we'll just pretend like we stopped talking about Dyka covers and we'll move on. <laughs> just think, Stella, you can review it every month for DC Comic Spotlight. In a few months, so, you won't even review well, I haven't actually and Robin told you guys. I haven't actually told you that, but we're getting rid of that, too. Oh! <laughs> are you hurting me so badly? <laughs> because he enjoys hurting females. Um, okay. No good double-crossing. Pass. 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 Pass? I don't have much to say about artists. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, even Damien passes. <laughs> Damien's had enough of this. <laughs> you better believe this is staying here. Poor Sergeant Rod Stromer. He's having a bad first date with Batgirl. What? Who? Who? <laughs> Detective Comics 483. Oh, okay. Oh, of course. Who could forget that? Wow. I've never read. Wait, 480? Oh, okay, Detective Comics. I was like, for a second I was confusing the numbering with Batman. I was like, in 483. Yeah, that's what I say. Yeah. She, yeah, she wasn't doing much dating. She was doing cyber dating. With uh, Ted Cord and uh, John Paul Valley. Joker. Did she ever talk to John Paul? There was a flirtation between her and John Paul in like the early like uh, Bat Family like '90s era when John Paul had his own title before um, before Nightwing's okay. title when like the editorial team said ship them. When Nightwing was slotting it up in Nashville. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Stella's seen those pages. I think. I think. Stella, Joe, and Dustin. We, we must have showed her those pages. <laughs> like, that wing's like taking like a shirtless shower and like randomly and then outside. <laughs> and that one girl, <laughs> she's like, Nightwing, can you kiss me? And he's like, why, sure. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and then rides off on his motorcycle. See ya. Solo, that's you. <clears throat> okay. Oh, this should be interesting. I can't do voices anymore. Yeah. Yes, you can. <laughs> no, people don't like them. Okay, I don't care. Do it. Well, anyway, just do, just do this. I'm ready. Yeah, him. Please, God, don't do that sound again. Really <laughs> Going forward, we really gotta watch how long we're spending talking about these, just so everyone knows. Because I know okay. Teen Titans is gonna be bad. But yeah, <laughs> yes, you do. We might have to take a break after Teen Titans. Batman: The Dark Knight, number zero. Written by Greg Hurwitz, illustrated by the artist. <laughs> okay.